Talk Recorded live. Hello again, everybody. This is Pastor Visser from the heart of the dirty south. That is Atlanta, Georgia, once again bringing you another Wednesday night Bible study. And with me, like always, is Obadiah 118. Are you there, brother? Yes, Jeremy. I'm calling from the heart of dirty Melbourne. Good to, good to hear you, and uh, great to um, be speaking with you and the listeners. Excellent. Is Melbourne pretty dirty this time of year? Um, well, it does get a bit dusty. Springtime, we get a lot of very variable w- w- uh, weather. We get um, a lot of windy sort of days and blustery days. It can be sort of like winter in the morning and um, dazzling summer in the afternoon. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just recently dropped over here for fall, so the nights have gotten real cold over here. So it's been kind of a welcome change from the extreme heat of the Georgia summer. Yeah, I don't mind the heat. It's just when it gets really humid. It gets very humid at the top of the northern end of Australia, up around, you know, um, Queensland and Darwin. I, I went up there once and, oh, it was shocking. You know, it was like the silly season up there. It really sort of saps your energy. But um, I really like the dry heat, and you often hear white nationalists saying how we should all go back to Europe, you know, that's where we belong, you know, in colder climates and that, but I love the sunshine. I mean, if, I'd love to, if it wasn't for for all of the um, mestizo, what mestizos and the, the fact that it's probably going to sink into the um, the Pacific Ocean one day, I wouldn't mind living in California. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what I said about Georgia. I really like it here if it wasn't, you know, if there were nobody else no other Negroes, Atlanta would be a beautiful city. It would be a perfect city to raise a family in. But with the people that are here now, it sadly isn't. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I don't know how you could hack it living amongst all of those um, non-whites. But, you know, saying that we've got so many non-whites here, it's not funny either. I mean, I can't go outside without seeing a, a Sri Lankan or an Indian or some sort of, you know, uh, mixed, some sort of admixture. We tons of Muslims from all over the place, from the, from Indonesia and um, the, the dark continent. Oh, it's a shocker. I remember, I remember a time when Australia used to be pretty much all white. Sure. Sure, I bet. I kind of remember when uh, California was predominantly white, you know, but now they call it Mexifornia for a reason, and it seems like the uh, locust armies are inundating pretty much of Christendom, at least white Christian countries, it seems that way. It's kind of like Wardy from the the uh, punk band Exploited. One time they asked him, they're like, "Why are you so racist in all your music?" And he says, "I'm sick and tired of every time I turn on me telly, there's a block face staring back at me." And it's kind of <laughs> true in today's era as well, because every time you turn on the TV, whether it's Survivor or whether it's uh, American Idol or whatever, there's always a Negro right there up in your face, you know. Well, it's it's. Interesting you mention uh, a rock star there, because a lot of rock stars have been coming out as racists recently. Roger Waters has been complaining about, from, from um, uh, Pink Floyd, has been complaining about the, inordinate, uh, the, the enormous influence that the Israel lobby exerts on the American political system. Um, Roger Daltrey in, in Britain, you know, who was the, the front man of The Who, he was complaining about all of the, you know, the, the changing face of, of Britain, you know, with all the non-whites and the the Muslims with their Sharia law and everything. And uh, I know Lemmy from Motorhead, I don't think he's come out and said anything particularly racist, but he has um, quite a fervent interest in Nazi memorabilia. So there is a bit of racism lurking out there in the entertainment community, or racism, I should say. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely seems that way, although it seems like mostly Europe can, can kind of be a little bit, at least in my opinion, seems like they can be a little bit more open with it. Here in America, a lot of these guys, you know, they uh, if they say anything, it's like Dog the Bounty, bounty Hunter when he said something about the Negro. The media just tore him to pieces until Dog the Bounty Hunter went ahead and he apologized to the inner city Negroes that he had offended. You see it time and time again with... uh. There was a radio show host, uh, Don Imus, I believe it was, not too long ago, came out and said about uh, nappy heads. One of the soccer teams were nappy-headed hoes or something like that and got in trouble for it, but I don't know. Then you get Clint Eastwood going and doing his little pranks like he did at the uh, before the presidential debate. <laughs> yeah, um, did, did you see that interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger on 60 Minutes? No, I didn't. Oh, I'm sure they've uploaded it onto YouTube. You should catch a look at it. I talk about an immoral bloke. He had so many affairs. And is he still the governor? He's still the governor of California, isn't he? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, the governor. It just goes to show show we always get the the, the politicians we deserve. We've got a commie lesbo uh, prime minister over here, Julia Gillard. And, and you, you know, you get all, well, obviously, you've got that freak Obama. Uh, you know, what a sign that America's gone down the tubes, that you'd have a black president, but also Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, there's a, an Aryan guy, as Aryan as you can get, but he lives such a, an immoral life, you know, and he, oh. and, and he really, you know, has... He, he said he was very remorseful about it, but you just watch him, that he really had, you know, no remorse at all over all the affairs, and, you know... Did, have you ever seen that picture, picture of that housemate he had an affair with and impregnated? I believe I think she was non-white. Yeah, she if, was. She's a mestizo, oh, okay. and she, she, she wasn't any oil painting. So I mean, he's obviously sex mad. The guy, did. you know, when you think of all the beautiful women he could have had affairs with. Not that I'm condoning affairs with beautiful or ugly women, but I mean, to to resort to her, to reach out to her. I mean, you, you, you'd have to be so randy. You'd have to be out of your mind. I reckon. <laughs> exactly and you pretty much have to be out of your mind to go into politics anyway you know and that's what's funny about california is you got clint eastwood and you got arnold schwarzenegger i mean you got these hypocrites and the, and the actors all the way up in the upper echelons of government at least on the local level out there and these guys take themselves serious you know schwarzenegger's been there probably like 15 years now really so how long can a, a governor stay st- stay in office for I'm not sure. That's a good question. You should look it up because uh, it seems like it's been a while, much more than the president who can only be it for like four years. Yeah, well, it's pretty much the same same here, four years. But, um, yeah, gee, he's been there for ages, and he's really run it into the ground, hasn't he, California? It used to be one of the most thriving economies on the planet, but now, now they're uh, in serious debt, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, California used to be probably one of the most profitable, you know, as far as, and it's one of the bigger, next to Texas, it's one of the bigger states, but now it seems like there's no jobs. In fact, my cousin just moved back there, moved back to Los Angeles from here, thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a job back, you know, from my old high school friends and, and what have you, and over the last four or five years, it's changed completely demographically to where like if you're white you can't really find a job in california you're going to be like one of the 
when I was a kid, there would be migrant workers, and they'd hang out on the side of the street, and all the Mexicans would just culminate in one particular area, and you could pull up and be like, I need four beaners because I'm planting some rose beds, and they'd hop in the back of your truck. You could give them a little bit of money here and there, you know. Now it's seemingly the opposite. If you're a white man, you're going to have a hard time finding work. It's kind of the same way here in Georgia. Once the Negro president came in power, all the Negroes got high-level positions and it made it a lot harder for white boys to get jobs because they forced the white man to hire everyone racially equal. But here, you know, when a Negro gets in a high position, he's going to, of course, naturally just hire his fellow blacks. And so that's what's happening here. It seems like white men can't find jobs. And in California, white men can't find jobs because the Mexicans. Yeah, well, we have a, a kind of a, a similar situation over here. A friend of mine was telling me recently that he lost his job to an Indian who sort of really, really sort of pushed his way to the top, you know, not caring about who he stepped on to get there. And once they, they get into power, you know, in an office situation or wherever, the Indians only employ Indians. I was reading um, a thread on one of the white nationalist forums uh, about a guy who, who was saying he was an accountant, but he, he, was, he couldn't get a job for love and money now because all of the Indians were taking up the accountancy positions and they were giving other, you know, positions to other Indians. So, so they really, they really have that racial solidarity that we lack, don't they, non-whites? Yeah, that's true. Like when I was growing up in Los Angeles, there was a uh, family of West Indians, I believe, the little dot-headed Indians, the ones with the little red dot, and they lived like right down the street from us. And I kid you not, there were like three families lived in one small house. And they would sleep in shifts because the house was so small. But everybody who lived in that house worked at the same McDonald's right up the road. And literally within about four or five years, that Indian family owned that McDonald's and only employed their own family members that lived in, in the San Fernando Valley. So it's kind of interesting that you bring that up because it's true. I've seen it myself. And then within a matter of time, they usually will run that business in the ground or – They'll turn around with their tax-exempt statuses and then go ahead and send the money overseas to their people, or vice versa. When the Mexicans go to Los Angeles, they make a lot of money, at least by their standards, and they send it back home. You know, it's a lot of money for the Mexicans in Mexico. Yeah, well, we, we as I said, we see a similar situation here, and there are sort of ripples of um, resentment. In, amongst the white Australian community towards all of the, the non-whites getting in here and uh, getting higher and higher above us, as uh, Deuteronomy 28 says that they would. And uh, we're seeing little outbreaks of violence here and there, but um, I think once the economy completely collapses, it'll probably collapse first in America, and then we'll, um, as we say in Australia, when America sneezes, we catch cold. Um, it, it'll start to collapse here. It already is to a certain extent. Um, there have been layoffs in you know major manufacturing plants and uh, you know uh, in, in the retail sector all over the place. But once that really starts kicking in, we're going to see more and more resentment here, and, and we'll start seeing some you know little outbreaks of ethnic ethnic tension, ethnic war war here in Australia. Yeah, it's interesting too because here in America it seems like, especially under Obama. Even Romney pointed it out in the in the presidential debates that uh, the amount of people on government aid and welfare and Section 8 housing and food stamps and so forth has gone from 27% in Reagan's era, which was about 25 years ago, up to 47% now under Obama. And naturally, that's kind of what a Democrat wants. But to me, it's quite telling in the fact that 
in a lot of ways, that's where they, at least the American government, wants most of the people. It seems like they have it stacked, stacked so that they can have four or five generations of people on food stamps, welfare, and so forth, and never rely or be self-reliant or, or need to find work. And so, I don't know, it's kind of like the whole theory of the scripture where it says the borrower servant to the lender. It seems like our government at least is willing to go ahead and hand out all these government kickbacks, but at the same time, there's usually always some type of strings attached to it, or... At least when 47% of Americans are on government aid, that's put on the back of the other 47% of people who are working who would probably be, at least if you've studied it out, majority white. Well, can you imagine how bad things are going to be once we do have the collapse, especially if you have to live in the cities amongst all of the, the welfare recipients, the, the chronic welfare recipients who's, who's, who's receiving a welfare goes back many generations? Um, imagine how they it's going to be like have you ever seen that show The Walking Dead it's probably going to be like that these people are going to turn into like zombies just run, racing around attacking people breaking into their homes to get food and whatever goodies they can get it's just going to be absolute hell on earth ha. I think it's awesome you brought up the, the Walking Dead because that series that television series at least at both first, the first two seasons is actually filmed about 20, 20 minutes from our house it's at, most of it, majority of it's filmed in Sonoya, Georgia, which isn't that far from Fayetteville and Atlanta and so forth. So I never knew that. Actually, my wife pointed that out. But it's so true. It's almost like the uh, movie Shaun of the Dead, where all the zombies were just your normal people. That's kind of how it is here. You know, you walk around and you're surrounded by a majority of people who are, I call them mouth breathers, you know, because they'll walk around with their mouth open and stuff, and they're really not the brightest. Sadly, I'm not boasting, but it's true. And, and not only that, Jeremy, you're going to have all the people that get um, subsidised medication, you know, for uh, psychological conditions. And uh, you, you're going to get all the druggies who are no, uh, their suppliers are no longer going to supply them with heroin and uh, amphetamines and methamphetamines and you name it. So all of those people are going to be drying out and they're going to go crazy. So, so they'll be like zombies. They'll be like the people, those turbocharged zombies in, what was the name of that movie, 28 Days Later? 28 Days. Yeah. Hyper zombies, yeah. Yeah, hyper zombies. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, so, so they're going to be like that. Living in the cities will be an absolute disaster area. Folks, you know, you, you really need to move out to the country while you can. Yeah, that's sound advice, especially in this day and age. And that's something I've been prob you know, saying from this pulpit and at least trying to instill within the family as well. Is self sufficiency truly is the key because the more reliant we are on the government, sadly the trade off of that seems to be that the government has more rights, at least to the American family. And a lot of people may not be aware of the food stamp office, the welfare office, at least here in the state of Georgia, is all through the Department of Human Resources. That's the same exact wing of government that can come and take your children at will if they feel so inclined. Now, naturally, not being on food stamps isn't going to stop them from taking your children if that's what they desire to do. But in theory, you know, the practice of being self-sufficient goes all the way back to the law of God as well. And that's what, you know, Yahweh wants us to be self-sufficient. And not only if we grow our own fruits and vegetables and try to live as free of the government as we can, will we be freer from their yoke, but we'll also be healthier for doing as such. Yeah, and people need to really start reading up and uh, looking at these things right now as, as to in relation to how to be self-sufficient. Uh, YouTube has some absolutely fantastic 
do-it-yourself videos on how to grow your own organic food, how to, uh, how to um, uh, you know, fix a broken leg. And, well, that, that's another really important point because when, when everything collapses, you're not going to be able to run to a hospital or a doctor if you get a broken leg or one of your children gets a broken leg. You know, you're going to have to tend to that yourself. So you, we really need to read up on these things and learn how to do them right now. And YouTube is an absolutely fantastic place to learn all of this. Yeah, that's true. I've noticed that YouTube, on the whole, is actually a very good source for finding, you know, rare films or or survival clips or how to make wine and so forth. I know people have been posting YouTube videos on our forums for a while, and it's kind of amazing in the in the era we live in, the ease of information. Like it says in Scripture, in the end times, knowledge does increase. It seems like in a lot of ways we live in that era now because man is really kind of without responsibility, I mean, or with responsibility. They can't turn around and say, I've never heard of Enoch, when you can go and, you know, find the text on the Internet. And on the same token, you know, there's not going to be too many people who say, I haven't heard the name of Jesus Christ, where it says his name shall be published, you know, amongst all our nations, or at least the Anglo-Saxon nations. It's kind of exciting, I think. I think that, you know, even the Apostle Paul would have been... Uh, excited to live in this era, at least in an era where it seems like it's the uh, end of an era, you know, like the birth pangs are getting closer and closer and closer. It seems to me like time is running quicker and all these warning signs that Jesus Christ pointed out, like wars and rumors of wars and so forth, are coming to pass at least at a quicker and relatively faster scale now. I couldn't agree more, Jeremy. I think it is a very blessed time to live in. Um, the early church age would have been a great time, but this one I think is even better because we might be around when Christ returns, you know, if he chooses not to tarry. But um, I think what people really need to, to, to focus on is Yahweh in these times. I mean, obviously, they have, I like Pastor Peter's advice, pray as if everything depends on God, but act as if everything depends on you. But... Um, I think we're heading for times where our day-to-day -day existence, our day-to-day -day survival is going to depend on our faith in Yahweh. So we need to get um, topped up by reading his word and acquainting ourselves with all the promises, go around singing them, write, you know, wrap them around the, your wrists, put them on your toilet wall, wherever, any, any place that's going to remind you of your position in Christ and um, you know, the, the benefits of, of, of being in Christ. And if people are concerned about, you know, oh, I, I know I should go out to go and live in the country, but I don't have the money to do that. Well, just pray to Yahweh to, to, to make the situation to, to enable you to live in the country, to, to, to set things up for you. He, he's promised to provide and bless for you. I mean, even if you have to live in a tent for a while, where would you rather live? In, the, in a tent, in a quiet, restful spot in the country or in the city when everything collapse, collapses with everyone running around killing one another? Good point, because even now in the city when it seems like... a you know, at least when you watch the Los Angeles news or the Atlanta news, they'll praise the Negro when he doesn't rape or murder, you know. It's like a double standard that they have in the media that you see, you know, almost every time something happens. There'll be a white kid in the news or something who gets abducted. They'll call him a, uh, a, a child. They'll call him a kid. They almost will dehumanize him and say, well, a black, white child or there and there. But through the media here, every time a Negro like doesn't rape or he doesn't murder somebody or, or manages to get a D in high school, they'll tout the praises of him in the media and call him a black youth, you know, and elevate him up. And, and almost every single one of these Negroes that are in the news here, whether they're a criminal or they're a hero, 
one way or another, every single one of them, at least according to the media here, is a aspiring rap star and or a great ball player. Yes, well, the Bible says, woe to them that call um, evil good, doesn't it? And, and that's what they're really saying. I'm not saying that the blacks are inherently evil, but they're certainly inherently evil when they're living amongst us because they, they, they prey on us and they, they, they're just not us. Um, and, and it's such a the, the only way the only way that people can can develop a respect for blacks is, is through the media because you can't do it in reality. Now the media we've discussed this before just keeps portraying blacks as you know judges. I was watching a show last night and you had your your stereotypical black judge and uh, you see them as computer geniuses and generals <laughs> and uh, it, 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 it's just this absurd Alice in Wonderland this uh, absurd topsy turvy reality that the new media betrays exactly and they definitely do it it's 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 no different than any other form of commercialism or like selling levi's and coca-cola really and you see it i mean you know the first time i ever really saw miscegenation on television like on a big scale outside of the jeffersons you know was really in the 90s through all the all the court shows and the talk shows and 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 mtv shows like the real world and so forth and then all of a sudden you started seeing, you know, at least society start to follow suit. The younger, impressionable high school age girls were all suddenly going out and dating black guys, not even realizing why. They would simply say, "Oh, I got to get myself a big, you know, a big black boyfriend." That's exactly the whole point of it. And it's true. Through media conditioning, they pretty much made it to the point that America's so out of their head that they would go ahead and vote for a Negro president over us who literally doesn't do anything and is about as dumb as an Uncle Tom from 200 years ago. It just stands there and, you know, Romney tore him up at the debates. Now, that was kind of refreshing to me, but on the same token, it doesn't really mean anything because here in America, they're going to put who they want in office and it really doesn't matter who votes or doesn't. But a lot of people believe in that, I guess. Yeah, I can see Obama getting in again, I think, uh, even if they have to rig the election, rig the voting system to do it. Um, but, Jeremy, I've got a couple of um, very exciting announcements. Oh, great. Excellent. Please do tell. Well, one of them, one, uh, I'm pleased to announce that the, the news of uh, Pastor Bob's passing has been greatly exaggerated, just like uh, Pastor Wickstrom's passing. Um, for the past week or so, he's been sending emails. I'm on his email list, and every day I'll get a, an email about you know what what sort of evil, wicked sort of schemes that the Jews are hatching, and all, all, all that all that interesting stuff. So it's great to see Bob's up and about again. Um, so so maybe we he will come on the show sometime. That'd be excellent. That'd be excellent. I uh I always love tuning into Wickstrom and Bob and hearing them kind of work off of each other. You know, it was a great show. Oh, that was. The halcyon days of the Hal Turner Network with Yahweh's Truth, that was just fantastic. I, I owe those guys so much. Uh, that was my first exposure to hardcore dual C-line Christian identity or racial identity, as Pastor Wickstrom likes to call, call it. You know, I, I, learned, I learned through that show that there was no such... that the only good Jews were... has a go. The only good Jews are, are dead Jews, and uh, Pastor Wickstrom's waiting for all the bad Jews to become good Jews. <laughs> Yeah, I said that when Michael Jackson died. I said, well, at least he finally joined the Good Niggers Club. <laughs> yeah, but, oh, dude. <laughs> well, that's great, Ben. Uh, excellent. Hopefully he'll be in contact because I know he's kind of one of those – he's a little harder to trace down than some of the other pastors. 
And I've got some other exciting news. Now, this is probably only going to be exciting to me. But um, have you ever seen the TV series Game of Thrones? Called what now? Game of Thrones? I've heard the name. I've never watched it. All right. What's well, the next one, series? Somebody described it as uh, as a cross between the Lord of the Rings and the Sopranos. But uh, oh, oh, it's an absolute landmark series, and it's based on a series of books by this guy called George Martin, not the director. This guy um, wrote these books, and I was watching it one night. And I was thinking to myself, now this is based on a series of books. I thought to myself. What if there are a series of books like this but based on Christian identity that was focused on Christian identity? And I thought to myself, well, I've always fancied myself as a bit of a novelist, so I'm I'm going to start writing these books. So last week I started writing book one, chapter one of The Sons of God, a uh, a proposed series of books I'm I'm writing on um, Christian identity. Um, It's going to be, be, how, how would I describe it, a cross between... I want to aim it at young people because I think a lot of Christian identity material is, seems to be aimed at the old, older set. So I want to aim this at people, say, young people between the ages of 12 and maybe in their, their early 20s. And I want it to be a cross between Twilight, without the, the vampires, of course, The Lord of the Rings, um, the Book of Revelation, and um, or maybe a, a, a dab of Game of Thrones here and there. So um, I, I'm really, it's, what, what the series is, is about is about this group of young people who eventually come to the realisation that they're the sons and the daughters of the living God and how that has a, this profound impact upon their lives and the impact of, of their loved ones and also about how it impacts upon the world as it slowly descends into the apocalypse. It's set just a little bit in the future in Australia. I might have um, some other... Um, uh, people from other countries in it. I haven't decide, decided that yet. But book one's going to establish the main characters and uh, you know how they relate to each other and also set, set up the sort of the terrible things that are coming upon the earth. But um, I, I'm, I'm only writing chapter one, one at the moment and uh, I'm only about a third of the way through that. I'm a painfully slow writer, but I hope to... What I'm going to do is serialise it and I'll post it on my forum and yours um, I'll post it. I'll put all the text in a post, and I'll also put a. Um, I'll also attach a, a PDF of it, and um, it's coming along really well. I think it's um, going to be quite quite a good read, but other people can make up their own mind about it. So I, I hope to publish the first chapter, which focuses on one of the late main characters, a girl, in fact. And I've done that deliberately because I think a lot of the material you're reading, Christian identity, not only isn't it aimed at young people, but it's not aimed at women. You know, women tend to get a short shrift in CI, and I think that's that's a big shame. So I want something that women, young girls, would like. And I, I, I want them to read something. I, I want them to read it and, and just to appreciate just their, their racial and their spiritual position, to really sort of, you know, bring that home to them. And I, I'm hoping and praying that the, the book achieves, achieves that. But anyway, I'll post the first chapter in a, in a week or two. That's excellent news. To me, you know, a lot of these other novels or the novelists within white nationalism, at least seemingly to me, seem to usually have this defeatist attitude, you know, and I'm not going to mention any names, but they, they're good writers and they can write really good books. But it seems like, oh, we're going to leave behind the whole South. Let's go ahead and let the, the Negroes take over this part and all move to one generalized area. 
you know. And so if it if it was Yahweh based and and focused on Scripture, that would be great because it would it would teach, you know, more spiritual reliance than self reliance. A lot of people make that mistake within white nationalism and even Christian identity, where they think stockpiling weapons and guns and and ammo, which is usually a good idea anyway to do, but it's not going to get you through the apocalypse. It's definitely not going to get you through the day of the Lord. You know, and, that, and that's pretty exciting, actually, to have some, some good fiction, you know, or at least reality-based fiction. Because there is no, as far as I know, no Christian identity fiction at all. Can you recall a, a book about, a novel about Christian identity? No. There are definitely non-fiction books about Christian identity, which are usually very, very opinionated from Baptists and Presbyterians and stuff, but nothing ever that I can recall from memory as far as actual, you know, literary works pertaining to or centering around the ideal of true Christendom. No, I can't recall of any. You know, there's definitely books around theological dogmas, but very little fictional books. So, or very none that I can think of. Well, it looks like this could be a first. I better make it good, eh? <laughs> Definitely. I'm sure people will be uh, tuning in just like, you know, just like normal. You know, people want to hear what Obadiah is up to because there's people out there who love making you into, uh, <laughs> into a big, Strange bigger... Strange poster. Yeah, yeah. And so it's great, you know, the uh, other side of the publicity. Anything you do. Is going to be highly publicized by our publicists, so I say go for it. You'll definitely have it all over the internet, and that PDF will circulate. And if people like it, there you go. I think we need yes. more books. You know. Yes, we do, and we really need to reach out to young people because, you know, as the song goes, uh, "Children are our future," and there is nothing that that tells them who and what they are. And, and, and certainly, I mean, Christian identity literature does cover that, but, but as I said, it's aimed more, more at adults. Children are sort of left out of things, and that's a big shame. I mean, growing up, we used to read fairy tales and, uh, you know, beautiful princesses and handsome princesses, handsome prince, princes, I should say, and, uh, you know, daring do and sword fights and these mystical kingdoms, and it all sort of keyed into with our race, didn't it, of the sort of European stock and everything. But now... There's nothing like that. It's all MTV. It's all you know racial intermixture and all of the books. Even the the Twilight books have you know you know miscegenation in them. And uh, I, I wanted something completely different for that. Something that'd be an entertaining read that kids could really get into and, and start to think to themselves, Hey, it really is. You know, I really am in a special position. It really is good to be white and to hang out with only whites and to mate with only whites and to be filled with the spirit and to be a part of God's kingdom. Because what's happening to us now, you know, what, our position in Christ Jesus is more magical, if I can use that word, more, more fantastic, more wonderful, more beyond the comprehension than anything out of the Lord of, Ring, Lord of the Rings or any kind of fantasy literature. I mean, we're living a... You know, if I can put it in this terms, a, a, a real-life fairy tale in one sense. Yeah, that's a good point. And in, in understanding through the Word, or at least Jesus Christ being the living Word, that everything does stem from that Word, then it's much easier, easier, I believe, to see the parallels within those books. Like if you read Tolkien's Cimmerillion, you know, and the forces of light and dark, even Lord of the Rings, pretty much everything from that and everything that C.S. Lewis wrote and everything that most of American li or your white Anglo-Saxon literature has been written is all 
godly inspired at its core root if you trace it back far enough Saruman was just a form of satan you know and so forth so it is that's really actually kind of exciting and i'm glad you also touch upon the aspect of the fact that at least in american culture most parents will read to their children fairy tales time and time again and then when they turn around and, and try to explain how jesus christ is real they wonder why their children don't really trust them the same theory applies when it comes to santa claus and easter and so forth a lot of parents do that and they raise their kids up to believe that santa claus is real and all these fictions are real and then when they turn around and try to expose them to the truth then the truth is pretty much evil spoken of like peter says so it's a good point that i think there's a thin line to between being a child but also raising our children to know the difference between what is fiction and what is reality because now with this current slew of children's books and novels and so forth they're all exactly like you said obadiah they're multiculturalized and they have all this other agenda just like disney films over the last 20 years all have this multiracial agenda behind them and so it's up to us as parents as well to instill within our children you know what the official answer is and what the truth is well there was one disney film that wasn't i think it was a disney film and it was the we're talking about there are no um, Christian identity works of fiction, um, but there was a Christian identity movie. Can, can you can you guess which which movie it was, Jeremy? What what year? It's a, it's a fantasy movie, very popular. It was a series, and um, based on a famous book. Hmm. I don't know. In this upside down world, it'd probably be something like Gargoyles or Sword in the Stone. <laughs> no, it was the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Ah, okay. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, sure. You had Aslan, the Lion of Judah, that um, that symbolized Christ. You had the Sons of Adam. That, have, have you ever seen the movie? Yeah, I, unfortunately I saw the big Hollywood blockbuster version, but I'm somewhat familiar with the Lion, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a book. Well, well, this is... This is the one. This is the one I, I mean, the, the Hollywood version, because because that was that had so many elements in it from the book, that um, the racial elements that they they left unscathed, and it really goes to show just how Yahweh um, can make it. You know how we were talking about Suspiria and other movies that sort of reflect the, the satanic element, um, you know, um, under you know, beneath society, just out, just out of just out of range of um, regular perception but um, Yahweh does a similar thing perhaps an even more overt thing by by making his presence felt even in the most unusual places like for example the Chronicles of Narnia where the sons of Adam were, that had those handsome white children who came, came along and saved the day and then then the lion Christ came along and you know rescued them before you know their lives and their civilization ended I mean that was so that was so reflective of, of what's going on today and what will will happen that I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic, especially if the kids were so white and, and they called them sons of Adam. It was it was so racially on the ball that it was, it was just amazing. But you see <laughs> Yahweh um, making his presence felt even the most unusual quarters. I remember watching, I'm a big fan of swimming and I was watching the, the World Swimming Championships a couple of years ago and... Uh, one of the um, British swimmers won a gold medal. And you know how when they're standing, you know, there on the dais, they, they play whoever wins the gold medal, they'll play their, their country's national anthem. Guess what they played for the for the British national anthem? Oh, Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem. Okay, by William Blake. That was that yes. would have been my guess. Sure. Yeah. And they also played it. I think it was the first song in the opening ceremony of the Olympics. Despite all of that multicultural nonsense you saw at the opening ceremony, you saw all these darkies walking around in bowler hats and that. I mean, and dinner suits. I mean, give me a break. But I mean, uh, right at the start, they had Jerusalem. They talked talked about Christ walking upon upon England's ground. Uh, you know, so, so Yahweh does make himself known, you know, in, in movies like the, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, if not overtly, and, um, and and even in the opening ceremony of, of the Olympics. It's quite amazing. Sure, sure. If you're spiritually in tune, that's where you can catch it. And it's true, it's something I pointed out here in the South, you know, you can put a dress, you know, a dress on a pig, or you can teach a monkey how to drive a car, but in the end, it's still a monkey trying to drive a car. And no matter how much the media tries to portray creatures as human, it simply will not fly. It's like in the recent Jared Taylor debate, right? One of the students asked him, and, there, and basically was, was threatening Jared, talking about how, oh, there's nothing you can do, because historically the whites are going to be overtaken through miscegenation. They're going to be bred out of existence in the next hundred years. And the thing that should be pointed out about that is that's historically an impossibility. Irregardless of even if the majority of the world goes and starts race mixing, there will be a remnant. There will be a group who will not. And that's all that's needed to really survive anything coming in the future. Yes, well, that was what was so good about the line, the witch in the wardrobe. You see, see all the, the, these four very white kids go into this land that's sort of a racial admixture of all these different animals, yet, yet, yet they're, they're the ones who saved the day. They're the ones, that, they were the remnant that, that came through in the end and um, set things right with the help of their God. Yeah, that's a good point, too. That's also why I've steered away from George Romero as a director as well, you know, on the tail end of what we were discussing last week, is if you noticed on almost every Romero film, from Night of Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead, up, the main lead and the hero is usually always Negro. And he was one of the first people, I think, at least Americanized, to start doing that. And, and back in the 60s, when Light of the Living Dead came out, he was being hailed as some civil rights activist for having a, a, a strong black lead in Night of the Living Dead. Of course, now that's everywhere in every television show, but back then it was a rarity. Yes, um, I, I, I used to like um, George Romero movies. I still do to a certain extent, but I really like Dawn of the Dead, which um, uh, Dario Argento collaborated on. But um, yeah, yeah, I noticed that in that first movie. It's really, really in your face with that black guy, but you know, coming and saving the day. That was really, that was really a uh, an avant-garde move move back in back in the late sixties. Yeah, it was. And that's why spiritual discernment is, is so, you know, kind of it's mandatory. It's what we were discussing before is because the hidden in plain sight attitude that our enemy has, whether it is D.C. street sorcery or whether it's their plans of what they want to do through the global Illuminati and the New World Order or whatever, is usually in plain sight. But you have to be spiritually in tune to be able to catch those. A uh, perfect example of that is Bollinger's number in Scripture. Now, there's pastors within Christian identity who want to come out and say that's from the Kabbalah and that's not really true. But there are certain themes in the Bible, and it does center around mathematics, and there are certain themes that are always similar, like 40 meaning probation or 5 meaning grace or 12 meaning government, that if we become familiar with 
you know, n biblical numerics, just as an example, then we're able to kind of foresee what's happening in Scripture when we read it just based on the numbers. Meaning if six men are chosen, then we know six is the number of man, and that's not really God's plan. And I'm just using this as an example because it, it's overlaid within almost every form of, you know, of media, even godless media, if you watch it long enough, a lot of the atheists will turn around and they'll start saying, well, you know, there's tares amongst wheat or there's sheep amongst goat. They can't even cease from going and dropping to biblical proverbs at times because almost everything stems from that. Well, mathematics permeates everything. It permeates the natural world with the laws of physics and uh, biodynamics and everything like that. And the Bible says that the, the world was created through Yahweh's word. So it only stands to reason that mathematics in some one form or another are going to permeate Yahweh's word as well. Yeah, I believe so. And I think it's important, especially when you get to Psalms and you start studying out the Psalms and you start getting into the acrostics. You know, there's acrostics within the Psalms that couldn't be placed there by man that are only you know, the divine intervention of God. Of course, you'd have to, you know... Jeremy, know. sorry, what did you say? Acrostics, did you say? Yeah, it, with, yeah. within the uh, Psalms... I've never heard of that. Oh, okay. Well, within the Psalms and some of the Proverbs, but mostly the Psalms, there's metered um, numeric codes that are put within them. And in fact, if you get a really good King James Bible... Many of the Psalms will have the numbers of the alphabet or the Hebrew alphabet. It'll say Aleph or, you know, all the way down. Within the acrostics in certain ones, I believe 119 is one because it's like the longest Psalm in all of Scripture and it deals with the truth of the Word. There's usually a numeric breakdown that will appear within the first two verses within the actual Hebrew script. When, you, when you're able to have that code, you're able to take it back into the Hebrew, find the code, and then you'll be able to find the actual numbers within that verse and if you read, or within that chapter. And then if you read, say, those five verses, it'll give you an entirely different meaning, but it'll be a psalm in and of itself. So there are psalms hidden within the psalms, and they're essentially called acrostics. And I, I've, you know, I've often thought about bringing studies on those because there's so many acrostics within the uh, psalms that Hebrew children were basically programmed to read when, through their familiarization of verse, as they became familiar with it, much like I was discussing about the Masons last weekend, how they had their own code. Well, it's kind of hardwired as well within Hebrew. And so there's other meanings within Psalms, you know, especially if there are 120 verses, you can narrow it down to five. It's kind of an interesting so across, concept. Acrostics, is that spelled A-C-R-O-S-T-I-C-S? I believe so. Yeah. All right, I'll have to look that up. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, well that's good that you mentioned Psalms because that kind of brings us to our topic for today, Desert Island Verses. Now, now, Jeremy, have you ever heard of a show called, uh, a BBC radio show called Desert Island Discs? Yes. Yes, I have. Right. I believe it. That's where they ask the other celebrities, isn't it? I yeah. think they well, ask well, other... It's based on a, sorry, it's based on a very simple principle. If you were trapped on a desert island and you could only take five songs with you, what songs would you take and why? And what they do is every, it's a very popular series. It's been running think, for decades, I think, since the 1970s, in fact. <clears throat> Pardon me. And what they do is every week they'll invite in a, um, you know, a politician or a celebrity, some, some no, notable person. They'll, they'll, they'll play their top five favourite songs and they'll... Um, get them to explain why those particular songs mean so much much to them. And you know, there's always a, some interesting background information that comes out. 
And I thought we'd do a, a Christian identity version, a theological version of it. We'll, we'll, we'll call it Desert Island Verses. So rather than talk about you know, five, five favourite songs, what five favourite verses would we take with us? And when I say verses, I don't mean blocks of verses or chapters, just single solitary verses. So, so Jeremy, how about you, 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 you kick things off with, 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 okay. with your, your first one of your, your five. It doesn't have to be in any particular order. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to point out. It's a great idea, but there's so much spiritual meat within the Bible. You're just going to have to kind of take them in chunks. So starting out, I would say, in no particular order, I would have to pick a very famous verse, at least within Christian identity, that's found within Amos chapter 3. That's the book of the minor prophet Amos towards the end of the Old Testament. And in chapter 3, verse 2, it says, you only, now this is Amos, the minor prophet, speaking to the Israelites. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Question. Now the reason I like that is because here it is in the, towards the end of the Old Testament, we see a confirmation which Christian identity pastors have been pointing out, you know, since pretty much the dawn of time, that Yahweh God is very exclusive with his bride and who he's chosen. And in that verse, he, he, Yahweh says, you, Israelites, or Jacobites, however you want to put it, Adamites, you only have I known of all the other families of the earth. Therefore, also... I will punish you for your iniquities. So we know that in Scripture where it says in Proverbs that whom Yahweh God loves, Yahweh God will chastise. I think as Christians a lot of times we have the tendency of when things get bad, we want to blame God or we want to sit there and say, well, you know, I'm not happy with my lot in life. But we should be able to understand that Yahweh God is chastising us because he loves us and wants us to be on the, the straight and narrow path. And all these other families... He has very little dealings with, and or nations, I should say. Oh, well, that's, a, that's an absolutely fantastic verse. And, and the reason I, I want us to do this is because it helps people to learn Scripture in little bite-sized chunks. And, and it helps them to sort of, it helps to acquaint them with Scriptures that they may have overlooked, you know, important Scriptures that they may have sort of read, but, but it hasn't really sunk in. You know how you can read the same verse over and over again, maybe hundreds of times, and then one day it kind of hits you? Sure. And, sure. and I think this would, be, this would be a good thing to ask if we have a guest on. Ask them their five favourite verses. You know, we might learn something interesting. Yeah, exactly. No, that's a good point. You know, as the Bible says, that faith cometh by hearing. That's an extremely good point because repetition is one of the keys of learning. And hearing these verses in this form, especially from people like ourselves who are studied within Christian identity, can have great benefit to the new listener as well, especially because it's pointing out right here, and they'll know exactly where to go, like Amos chapter 3, if they want to show the exclusivity of Israel or whatever else. So I, I love the idea, actually. I think it's great, and we could easily have five each each program. Um, now, now, my, now, my um, five favorite, I'm not going to read it in any order, except the last one is my favorite. My, the last one actually ties in with um, Amos 2. So, but I'll, I'll leave that for last. But um, now I can only the, the rules of the game is that you, not not that it's necessarily a game, but uh, is that you can only have a single verse. Now, I, my favourite chapter in all the Bible, Psalm 34. I mean that I've prayed over that chapter. It must have been hundreds of times. 
you know, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. You know, the young lions still lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want, want, uh, not want any good thing. Um, you know, the, the Lord deliver me from all my fears. Just a glorious, absolutely marvellous chapter. But, 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 but I'll just take verse 1, and that is, this is Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, the book of Psalms in the Hebrew means praise songs. And if there's one major thread in the book of Psalms, it's praise. It's just, you know, praise Yahweh for this, praise Yahweh for that. Because David, when he wrote them, he'd been through so many difficult situations, come out of situations where he thought he was going to die, and he just, you know, praised the Lord because it was the Lord who brought him out of those you know, terrible predicaments. You know, the enemies were, were gathered round about him and Yahweh delivered him and he'd, he'd say, you know, praise Yahweh for delivering me. Praise Yahweh for doing this. Praise Yahweh for doing that. And if you look at Psalm 150, the last chapter of the book of Psalms, it's nothing but praises. It's just praise Yahweh for this, praise Yahweh for that, praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh. And, and, and the, thing that, the thing that, the reason that praise is so important is that it, 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 it's a vehicle for our faith. Because when we're praising Yahweh, even in situation, even in dire situations, even when it looks like there's no hope left for us, we're channeling our faith through our praise. The Bible says Yahweh inhabits the praises of his people. He dwells in your praise. And even if you have to praise Yahweh with you know, stinging tears rolling down your face, with you know, your teeth gritted in pain, the, the Bible says that um, praise is a very pleasing sacrifice to Yahweh because you're showing him that no matter what happens, you're putting your trust in him, your faith in him. There's a wonderful um, account in the Bible in Second Chronicles chapter 20 where Jehoshaphat was um, you know, in, in a very bad situation. The, the, the children of Israel, um, you know, the Edomites were coming into the land. They were, the, they were you know, arraying themselves to, to destroy Israel. But uh, Yahweh said, you know, I've got you the victory. Just go out there and um, just stand there and watch me get the victory for you. So what Jehoshaphat did, did he said, right, I want you... He got a group of people to go out in front of the... The, the Israelite army, and he got them to praise Yahweh. And the Bible says um, in, in, in verse 22 of Second Chronicles chapter 20, um, uh, where are we here? Verse 22, I beg your pardon. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the, against the enemy. So the moral of the story is when we praise Yahweh, when we exercise that purest kind of faith in our lives is when Yahweh starts to work for us. You know, Yahweh always demands faith before he will act in our lives. He, 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 and praise is one of the key things, one of the chief, chief ways in, in which we do that. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. I've pointed that out many times as well, is how overlaid within man's relationship with Yahweh is how we're supposed to govern our own relationships as well. And one of the very first steps that's required, at least on the part of Yahweh, is faith, meaning trust. You know, trust is something that we have to either decide we will or will not do for Yahweh God. And if we do choose to trust him, meaning have faith, then it seems that Yahweh God will add wisdom to or understanding to our wisdom and add wisdom to our wisdom. So, I mean, in short, basically, you know, it, it always requires that first baby step on the part of man, you know. Well, faith is the only currency that Yahweh accepts in the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please Yahweh, meaning that, 
not only is it highly unlikely that you're going to please Yahweh, but it's it, it's just out of, completely out of the question. Good point. Good point. Well, my second verse or desert island verse for the evening, of course, would be one that pretty pretty much everyone who's ever listened to me preach has heard me quote before, and that would be found in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5. And this is where Jesus Christ is having an argument with the Pharisees, like he did so many times throughout all four of our Gospels. But in verse 7, so that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, excuse me. Verse 17, Jesus Christ says this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so with that verse, you know, we hear a lot of the antinomians and a lot of Judeo-Christians who love saying the, nail was, the law was nailed to the cross and the law was done away with by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Yet here it is, Jesus Christ saying straightforwardly that he did not come to do away with the law or the prophets, tying it all the way back to the Old Testament, meaning that this is the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets, both of which Jesus Christ did not come to do away with, quote-unquote, but to literally fulfill, being that word meaning add to or complete. And that's an essential verse within Christian identity, because Christian identity usually always teaches 100% adherence to God's law, which is mostly found within Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And here it is in the New Testament, Jesus Christ confirming that he taught the laws, the law. And of course, in the very next verse goes on to say that whosoever teaches the laws done away with should be considered the least in the kingdom. Jeremy, I'm getting a couple of beeps at my end at regular intervals. Are you, you hearing those? I'm hearing them too. Actually, and it, and I looked into the chat, and it doesn't look like anybody's actually on the line, so that's interesting. All right, I will just disregard them for the time being. That's such a great great scripture you read out there. That's such a linchpin scripture in Christian identity. I must have read that a hundred times in various Christian identity articles, because it really shows that the that the law has not been done away with. It's been fulfilled, but fulfilled and done away with are two completely different things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the whole point within, I think, one of the most major differences between Judeo-mainstream Christianity and Christian identity is that teaching that the law is done away with or the law is still in effect. And, of course, we in Christian identity know that Jesus Christ taught the law and, and the Pharisee was one of the types of people who liked to fudge it. And this is the reason why, of course, Jesus would later on say, you sit in Moses' seat, you profess to teach Moses, which would be the law, but, of course, they were hypocrites saying, thou shalt not kill, and planning to kill him. So he pointed out their hypocrisy time and time again. Okay, well, my sec second Desert Island verse um, is my very name, Obadiah 18. I actually call myself um, Obadiah 118. There's no real reason, uh, sort of scripturally speaking, to, to have Obadiah 118 because there's only one chapter in Obadiah. But uh, the reason I do that is because if I just put Obadiah and tacked 18 onto it, then people would just think it's a weird name with 18 tacked onto the end of, the, end of it. But if I put 1 colon 18, then people will look at it and think to themselves, oh, that looks like a scripture. I might look that up. So there is a, a method to my madness there. But Obadiah 18 reads, And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. So we all, all of us in Christian identity, what know, know what that's about for a while. That's about the ultimate 
destruction, the genocide, if you will, extinction and annihilation of your friends and mine, the Jews. And again, like you pointed out on the one uh, that I had mentioned, that is a pivotal, at least Old Testament verse that is central to Christian identity teaching because there really are two camps. And, and in essence, both camps are right. There are those who want to come and say it's all Cain, Canaan, or Kalyan, or the Canaanite, you know, being the child of the devil, which is what his name means in essence. And then there's the other camp who puts it all on Esau, Edom. Either way, it doesn't really matter, and I've pointed this out before, because whether you believe the children of the devil were through Edom or whether you or Esau, or whether you believe that it's through Cain all the way back in the garden, uh, Esau, Edom eventually went ahead and intermarried within Can the Canaanite people anyway. So either way you look at it, it's still the same race of people. Well, it's really six of one, half a dozen of the other. Whether you call them Edomites, Canaanites, ultimately it's all the same thing because they all have that racial admixture in them. Um, but but um, you hear the reason that Jews focus so much on the Holocaust and, and have concocted the Holocaust story is what they're trying to do is prevent the real Holocaust that um, Obadiah 18 refers to. That's why you always hear the Jews saying, you know, in relation to the Holocaust, it must never happen again. Well, the fact is it hasn't happened, but it's going to happen. And the Jews... You know, uh, many Jews, I'm sure, realise that it's going to happen. A lot of Jews may maybe not be, be able to express it as such, but have that innate sense that it's going to happen. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, because one of the uh, propaganda tactics here in, in America, at least out of Hollywood, is to always pump and dwell this term, Holocaust, Holocaust. And a true Holocaust, in its essence, would be considered the end of the world. And, you know, to point that out to people that the end of the world wasn't in 1943 to 1945, that the, the world didn't stop and end with World War II, the, the choice of the term Holocaust is even quite questionable, or should be, at least to the average person, as to why they keep referring to the six million, the magical six million number, as a Holocaust, meaning the end of the world or the apocalypse, for lack of a better term, and those that were killed in Dresden or, or, you know, killed during the war are basically goyim and not mentioned, you know, not worthy to be mentioned. But that's a good point that Obadiah completely, and I've covered that in my sermon, uh, The Vision of Obadiah, the entire thing is about the Holocaust of the Edomites. And it's not our fault that the Jew want to claim in their 1980 Jewish encyclopedia that modern Edom became Jewry. You know, that's their own term. They claim to, to be descended from Esau, Edom, in their own writings. And that should be pointed out as well, because, you know, a lot of people want to say that we're only quoting the Bible. But a lot of times we'll quote the Jews in their own words, and that's one such quote. Well, well the word Holocaust means the whole of something burnt up. It means a complete conflagration, something that's every, every aspect of it has just been totally just, you know, re reduced to carbon. So, so it's very prophetic that they use that term because we are going to see a holocaust. The whole of Eden, the whole of, um, Cana the whole of Canaanite are going to be completely just burnt into stubble. Yeah, that's a really good point too because almost all the latter modern you know, minor prophets in the Old Testament always referred to Judgment Day, quote-unquote, as the great and terrible day of the Lord or as a day with fire. You know, and it was Jesus Christ taught the same when it came to the parable of the tares and the wheat as well. 
that the angels in the end of time, quote-unquote, will gather up those hairs and burn them that they were burned first. So it always is this restoration process. Our God, being the consuming fire, seemingly will purge everything back to its initial state, being paradise and or Eden. And, of course, the child of the devil has no position in there because he wasn't really created. He was bastardized and, in essence, will be burnt up from stubble. That's why I'm glad you brought up Obadiah 118 because that's a – beautiful verse in a lot of ways. I think a lot of people miss it with the imagery of fire and destruction, but it really is a cleansing restoration process. Well, fire is, is used so much throughout Scripture as a, a symbol of purification and, and, and literal purification because, you know, uh, cleansing the world of Jews is certainly one great way of um, purifying the world, but the, the Bible also talks about our fiery trial the Bible talks about how we are filled with the, God, the Holy Ghost and fire. So fire is a, a very spiritual term in Scripture, isn't it? Indeed. And when Moses spoke to Yahweh God, he spoke to him in the form of a, of a burning bush. And as Yahweh went with the children of Israel during their exodus, it should be pointed out that he went in the form of a consuming fire before them, lighting their way. And so when Jesus Christ would make those terms like, let the blind lead the blind, for they'll both fall in the ditch, and I am light, and so forth, you know, he was referencing that point that really only Yahweh God can give a person eyes to see and ears to hear. And it's really him imparting that bit of light of himself within us. That's really all he does, in essence. And that's what I think we tried to capture in our spiritual gift series, was the importance of being the sons of God, you know, to be able to at least counter the children of the devil. And speaking of the children of the devil, my third Desert Island verse would be another central verse, or at least a pivotal verse within Christian identity that so many of us have pointed out. And it's found in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3. This is the curse that Yahweh God places on Adam and Eve and the serpent for the original sin. Now, there's much debate, much dissension as to what the original sin is, but to boil it down in its simplest term, the original sin would be going after the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Yahweh God says this to the, to the woman, yeah, to the serpent, actually. I, Yahweh speaking, will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her head. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now the importance of this verse is it's considered to be the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first mention of Jesus Christ, at least according to theologians, in the New Testament. And this prophecy, of course, was fulfilled at the cross where, G- where Satan had bruised say, uh, Jesus' heel through the uh, crucifixion, but of course he overcame that. But this is essential teaching because it shows that between the children of the devil, who of course were fathered by the devil, or, or Satan, and the children of light, who came through Seth, there is enmity, a natural hatred that's placed there. And we can see that within sex, even within Christian identity, because there's those who profess to be CI that hate this group or hate that group. But we shouldn't be surprised that tares look like wheat, that they pretend to be just like you, but on the same token, there's a natural hatred. Nothing will change that except Yahweh God himself. Yeah, it's a great verse. That's Marty Lindstedt's favorite scripture because he's always saying that the, the Genesis, the Genesis 3.15 enmity is uh, in demonstration when uh, we attack him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of it is that, 
you know, never the two shall meet, really. And this is where Yahweh God says, come out from among them, you know, don't touch the unclean thing, and I'll be a father unto you. As in a lot of ways, you have to be able, we have to be able to be strong enough to be able, through spiritual discernment, to come out from among them, to know who's who and who's you. And the only way to do that, of course, Jesus Christ taught it, is through a person's fruits, through their works. What a person says with their mouth doesn't mean anything, because there's a million and one Judeo-Christians out there who all claim to be Christian and live no different than the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. Well, my, well, my third desert island verse is a very is a real favourite of mine, and I'm like Psalm 34. I've prayed over this many times, and I've really had to drum this out this into myself many times. You know, when I've had struggled struggled with faith, as we all do from time to time. Me, probably more so than anyone else. Um, this is Proverbs chapter three, verse five, and this is the amplified amplified Bible rendering. Lean on, trust in, and be confident confident in the Lord with all your heart and mind, and do not rely on your own insight or understanding. I mean, how many times have we tried to, you know, we've asked the Lord to, to bless us in some way, to, to protect us, or to do this, or to do that, and then as soon as we put it to him, we start to worry about it. We start to try to work out in our own minds, how is Yahweh going to sort this situation out? How is he going to, to fix it? I, I just can't see any any way of this situation being resolved to my to my benefit and we we look to it to our own understanding we think think to ourselves we just dwell totally in the natural don't we and we think to ourselves well well, because there's no earthly way of this happening it's not going to happen but Yahweh isn't bound by the laws of physics he isn't bound by the laws of logic he he makes his own his own rules as far as miracles are concerned and we really need to jettison our faith Oh, sorry, to, to, to jettison our, well, not jettison, to, to disengage them, you know, when, when, when we pray. Because we, our mind, as soon as you pray for something, doubts are going to start cre- creeping into your mind. It's just a natural, it's just your flesh being, you know, at, at enmity with um, Yahweh's spirit. So it's very important for us when we pray for something to believe that Yahweh's actually going to answer our prayers. The Bible says nothing is impossible for Yahweh. And the Bible also says nothing is impossible to he who believes. So, so there is that connection there between, between us, you know, believing that uh, nothing is impossible for Yahweh and for, with Yahweh saying that um, he can do, do, do anything. So, so it's so important when, when we pray to Yahweh that um, we don't rely on our own insight or understanding because Yahweh, the Bible says, you know, his thoughts, Yahweh's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Yeah, that's a great point, too. I think man will almost literally study himself retarded many times trying to know the thoughts of God. And Scripture straightforwardly points that out, that we cannot know God, at least the deeper, you know, parts of his plan and his plan for us. And that's where the danger of judging comes in, too, because we see that so many times people want to judge this person and judge that person. And scripturally, that means they're judging the law. Many of us forget that when we're sitting there pointing out that this person has this fault or this person has that. We forget that this person may also be accepted with Yahweh God as well because it really does come down to faith. And I think that's the whole symbology behind the widow's might and, and when Jesus Christ was sitting in the temple. He was more impressed with the widow's might more than all this other because it was really all she had. And if we give all we have, then we truly are pleasing God, at least through faith, because that's the only way we can, as you mentioned. Well, that's such a crucial 
point you mentioned there is that um, if somebody is acceptable with Yahweh, accepted by Yahweh, then they had better be accepted by us because we're saying that they're not acceptable to us, if they're not good enough for us, if they're not doing all, all the things that we think they should do, then we're essentially placing ourselves above Yahweh, aren't we? Yeah, and, and, and I think perhaps the bigger irony is denying the grace that Jesus Christ gave us. Every single one of us once was lost and, you know, came to the truth, whether it was through divine intervention or somebody else. But I think many of us forget how we were when we lived in darkness, when we were blinded to Yahweh's truth. And that's when we start going around judging our, our kinsfolk and so forth, saying, well, this person isn't, you know, worthy. Well, <laughs> neither were we until we were called. And even then, you know, our righteousness really does appear as filthy rags to Yahweh God, but it is a natural instinct, like you pointed out, of man to get lifted up through worry many times, and trying to know God. You know, that's the whole thing. We, know, we can know God through his morality, and I've pointed that out. That's why it's there. That's why it's important. But we don't know the hour or the moment. We don't know how Yahweh God's necessarily going to deal with the heathen. We don't know how Yahweh is going to do a lot of things. And I think a lot of people are going to be really kind of confused in judgment because, you know, like Christ said, he who was first will shall be last, and so forth. Many of us who think we're so great are actually going to find out that we were the least. And that's where the danger of judging comes in. So that's why I think that verse is great. Well, well, the Bible says that you know, Yahweh regards us as his children. Of course, he wants us to be his children. But more than that, he wants us to be his friend. The Bible talks about how Abraham was Yahweh's friend because Abraham believed in Yahweh even when all seemed lost, even when um, Yahweh told him you know, to, to sacrifice Isaac. And he was willing to do that because he knew that Yahweh would raise Isaac up again, that he would sort the situation out, even though in the natural sense it seemed hopeless because Yahweh himself was telling him to sacrifice the kid. You know, If Yahweh was telling him, I mean, what, what hope in the natural did the kid have? But um, because, he, because his faith was, was so childlike, um, Yahweh looked at him as more than just his son, as somebody he wanted to pal around with. Yeah, that's a really great point, too. And, and I think Job recognized that in the Old Testament as well, as when everything was taken from him, and his whole opinion was, the, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. You know, And Isaac had that in common with him. You know, that it is man's propensity to turn around and blame God when everything happens. You know, and Job didn't make that mistake. And through his faith, through his perseverance, and through not listening to his wife and the hearkening of all his friends, with that mindset of the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, it was restored tenfold to him. And so that's that's a, a valuable lesson, I believe, in faith. I tell you what, we're covering some great scripture and points here. I mean, this is, a, a very, this is probably the most edifying segment we've done yet, Jeremy. <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so. And leading up perfectly to my fourth Desert Island verse, it would be a verse taken from the day of Pentecost, which would be found all the way in Acts chapter 2. Now, this was after hearing the uh, latter apostles preach. Many of the people of the city roundabout came up to Peter, who was the keys of the kingdom, according to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, Upon you, Peter, I shall establish my rock, establish the church, and so forth. And they asked him, What shall we do? And in the, books, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38, Peter answers. It says this, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this verse I picked because it's crucial in a lot of ways because many people within Judeo-Christianity always ask, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to please Yahweh God? And here it is, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, giving that answer already within our words, within our word that we have it today. And what he says is, repent first and foremost. In order to, what must we do to please God? We have to repent. We have to want to repent. Now, repentance isn't necessarily saying, I'm not going to do that again and going ahead and doing it. Repentance, true repentance, means changing a person's behavior so that they do not do it again, not just saying it. So we can say, I'm sorry for doing something wrong, but true repentance means never doing it again. But the first key is repent. Then he says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And so here's the whole teaching of baptism within the New Testament. And, of course, within Christian identity, there's a lot of people who want to say baptism doesn't mean water. It can mean fire. and It has all these other connotations. But be that as it may, Peter is saying here, long after the crucifixion and ascension of Jesus Christ, that baptism is something else that we must do. First, we have to repent, and our faith would lead us to be baptized. And then, of course, we have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, where the power lives. But the final, probably, you know, key, the ta hard, it's hard to put it, but the final key in this verse, of course, would be the last part, and that is for the gift of the Holy Ghost. And Peter, of course, is in essence saying here that one of the ways that we can be imparted with the gift of the Holy Spirit is through obedience, through baptism. And we see this example with Jesus Christ as well when he was baptized by John in the River Jordan and a spirit like a dove ascended. This was also the point where Satan came to tempt Jesus Christ was post-baptism after he was baptized. And so that's why I picked that out because this is Peter essentially telling future Christians that this is what we need to do to please Yahweh God. Well, I couldn't have... <laughs> I couldn't help but smile when you read out that scripture, Jeremy, because it made me harken back to my Pentecostal days. I must have handed out literally thousands of tracts with that verse on it, because that's such a key, key, key scripture, and, and we used it quite, quite a bit in the Pentecostal church where I used to go. Um, that's where I was baptised by full immersion uh, many moons ago. Um, but it's interesting you're talking about repentance there, because as you said, it's not just a one-off deal is it it's something you really have to it's an ongoing thing you have to stay repentant because repentant means to essentially put your ideas aside and adopt Yahweh's and to just stick by his way of doing things regardless of your, your particular thoughts on the matter <coughs> excuse me exactly and that's the whole point. I think a lot of times man wants to, within his small, finite mind, box Yahweh God within it and say, at least bring God down to their level, especially when times of atrocities happen. They say, well, why would God do this? Never understanding Romans 8.28 or the fact that Yahweh God does do everything together for good. And that's the whole point. Yahweh God, in a lot of ways, and this is what I was trying to touch upon when I was saying that faith leads us to that, or trust in God first, being the first step, he usually asks us to do that without understanding, and that's the whole point. I don't think Adam and Eve really understood why they weren't allowed to know the knowledge or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just the fact that they weren't allowed to. You know, God didn't add to it and say, well, if you do this or that. He essentially said, if you touch it, you'll die, and they went and did it. And so through his morality, you know, Yahweh God tells us 
why it is. So, you know, the point is, is a lot of people say, well, you don't want to know the knowledge of good and evil. But in reality, Yahweh God does call every Israelite to know the knowledge of good and evil because the knowledge of good and evil is found and transcribed within his law, meaning that if you see someone do this evil act, then this is how you deal with it. But what Yahweh God doesn't want us to do is to play within that evil or to deal and, and, and have our hands swift to do evil. And so that's that's actually a really great point. And, and another crucial point about that scripture is that um, they had to do something in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, they couldn't earn it, don't get me wrong on that score, but they had to exercise faith and belief. And uh, they, were, they would not receive the Holy Spirit without it, would they? At all. And that's what I think makes us such a fundamental you know, verse as well is because if we want to debate what baptism is or we want to debate what repentance is or we want to debate whose name we're baptized in, whether it's Jesus or Yahshua and so forth, these are real, all really side issues to the fact that obedience first and foremost is required. And I pointed that out on a sermon about two weeks ago where I, had, I mentioned that. I've had people come and they say, hey, will you baptize me, Pastor Visser, which is something that I don't normally do, and I'll accommodate them. And within a week or so, well, oh, Pastor so-and-so says baptism isn't really essential. And my whole point is, is whether you believe it's water, whether you believe it's fire, whether you believe you know, it's Yahshua or Jesus, you should believe that it's mandatory to do it because that's what Peter said. And, of course, Jesus Christ did hand those keys to Peter so that whatever he bound on earth is also bound in heaven. And so Peter, in essence, here is telling them, you know, faith. You've got to obey. You have to be obedient. And that's the difference, I think, between the modern Christian and the uh, true sola scriptura Christian identist in that regard is that the modern Christian doesn't really have outward you know, signs. They don't really have the fruits to show it, seemingly. And a lot of them, if they do, it's done to be seen of men doing it. And that's what we see in Hollywood all the time. You know, these big celebrities who want to come and say, I just donated $10 million to Africa. Look at me doing it. The whole point is, is if it's a good work, it should be done in private. And Yahweh God will, will you know, reward us in private. Well, donating all that money to Africa is like Jerry Taylor addressing all of those niggers. I mean, you know, what a waste of time. <laughs> I know. That really went nowhere, did it? Because, because all the Negro heard through their college programming from that debate was any white man expressing any form of equality equals white supremacist. So every single one of them got up and asked Jared Taylor, they're like, hey, how's it feel to be a white supremacist? Or where did you develop these white supremacist ideals? And Jared had to keep telling them, look, nowhere did I say I'm a white supremacist. I'm a white separatist. And I think that's kind of the difference as well. It's true Christian identity will be a separatist religion or Christian separatist because Yahweh God says come out from among them and be ye separate then I will hear you but many very few of us are supremacists meaning we want to rule over the other nations in fact we care little about them just like Christ well, well Jared Taylor doing that Jeremy reminds me of a classic scene in my all-time favorite movie Groundhog Day where um, Bill Murray asks Andy McDowell, he turns around and says, well, oh, so what did you learn in college? She goes, 18th century French poetry. And he rolls with a laugh and says, oh, what a waste of time. Yeah, Groundhog Day is awesome. I like Bill Murray. Yeah, so do I. He's such a great actor. He's one of my favorite actors. And that, that movie just gets better every time I see it. Anyway, I'll go on to my fourth Desert Island verse here. 
And the, the amplified rendering of this really is, is, is impossible to beat. Um, it's Ephesians 3.20, and this is the amplified version. Now to him who, by in the consequence of the action of his power that is at work within us, is able to carry out his purpose and do superabundantly, far over and above all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, hopes, or dreams. What a, an absolutely awesome verse that is. Just again, talking about just the, the just the infinite power of Yahweh, and that essentially nothing is impossible for Him. And no matter how we, how much we can desire, how much we we crave, Yahweh can give us far above our, our, our wider, wildest imaginings. Yeah, and that ties so perfectly in with the whole ideal of what we've been, you know, talking about tonight, and that. We can't really know the thoughts of God, and that's the whole thing. Through obedience, though, we can't earn that greater reward, and that's what Jesus Christ taught, you know, so adamantly in his walk was that, you know, we're not to store up treasures on earth, we're to store up treasures in heaven, and in doing so, these are true treasures. And that's something I think the, that Adamite men and women have a hard time grasping is space, time, reality, and so forth. It's because God can only grasp that. If you think about man's mind, man can, can think a hundred years. They can even maybe think in a thousand years, to, you know, blocks of time. But man really, truly, the human mind cannot fathom forever or eternity in a lot of ways. They Oh, they, that's forever, that's a long time. But the human mind can't really actually comprehend it, my whole point. And so, you know, that verse ties in with that because God will reward us so, you know, according to, to his will and his works and, well, our own works and what he desires for us. And man usually time, oftentimes is not content with that. Well, well, the Bible says, I haven't seen nor ear heard the things, uh, the wonderful things that Yahweh has instored for those that love him. I mean, you know, whenever we think of blessings and rewards, we, we, we tend to think in, in terms of earthly things, like sex and, uh, you know, prosperity. But the things that Yahweh has in store for us are going to be even greater than those. And, and when I say greater, infinitely greater. I mean, uh, I mean if, you, if some earthly king said to you, Jeremy, I'm going to reward you, you know, he might buy you a really nice house and you know, give you lots of riches and that. But, but eventually those things, the novelty of those things are going to wear off and you're going to get so old and decrepit that you're not going to be able to enjoy, enjoy them anyway. But the things that Yahweh has in store for us are, are going to last for eternity and never going to run out. We're never going to get bored with them. We're never going to get tired of them. They're going to be a trillion times better than anything, uh, than even the greatest blessing, the greatest reward that, that earth has to offer. I mean, we've got a superannuation plan, you know, laid up for us that is beyond, beyond, the beyond your comprehension. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because Christ taught that, that we, when we store up treasures in heaven, we're storing up the treasures that moth nor dust doth corrupt. And that seems to be the way of man down here on earth, is their whole opinion and their attitude, at least the working man in this latter era, 2012, is if I die with the most toys, I win. And it is kind of ironic because it's, it's like circular reasoning because they work all these hours to have all these toys that they never appreciate and then they put themselves in an early grave. And usually some ungrateful lot will get you know the toys that they 
store up, and that's the whole point. The truly rich, and that's what I said last weekend, the truly rich, many times when you see them, you know, you won't know they're truly rich. Most of the people driving around in Lexuses are living on credit cards, and they're, they're what we consider nigger rich. And in a lot of ways, it's the same exact way with the sons of Adam. If we're truly spiritually rich, that's not something that we could know. And that's the reason why Jesus and Yahweh both tell us to not judge our brother who may be accepted with Yahweh God. Because outwardly, the cold exterior may show something to you that Yahweh God looks past, and that's the whole point. If he's accepted with God and spiritually rich, then he has treasure in heaven that's non-corruptible. Anything we do down here, and man misses this, it doesn't matter what you do, what you build, Within a hundred years, it's not going to matter. No one's going to remember, and that's the whole point. No one remembers anybody anyway, except for the bad ones that the media never want to let go of, like Hitler and so forth. But, you know, for the most part, we all die paupers' deaths, and we should be content with that because there is greater treasure waiting for us. Now, Jeremy, we're at, we've come to your fifth and final Desert Island verse. Yes, we have, and there are so many that I could pick from, but for tonight... I'm going to pick a verse from 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. Now, this is a a uh, unlikely account that's found within the Old Testament and many of the people came up to Yahweh God in spirit form, if you will, and asked Yahweh God what they should do about the false prophets within the land. Now, we know according to the teachings of Paul, at least according to Romans, that what usually happens when mankind does not like to retain Yahweh's law within their knowledge, meaning exercise it, they want to dismiss it, they want to do away with it, God will give them over to a reprobate mind. But here in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 22, it says this, And Yahweh God said unto him, this is a spirit, an unnamed spirit from the verse before, Yahweh God said unto him, wherewith, and he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Yahweh speaking, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth, and do so. And so this is one of the places in the Old Testament where it is Yahweh God sending strong delusion into the mouth of the false prophets, so that the people who are not called and chosen of Yahweh God will be misled. And this also was taught by Jesus Christ. But I think what should be pointed out is the fact that while Yahweh God has no part in evil and is truly separate of evil, he controls evil. And one of the verses I would have chosen perhaps would have been also from Amos where it says, shall there be evil in a city and Yahweh God hath not done it. Now that verse says that Yahweh God does evil, but throughout the rest of the whole scripture, Yahweh God is separate from evil. So we know he's omnipotent, we know he's all things, but yet there is a separation of evil from Yahweh God's omnipotence, and it's usually done through the form of a lying spirit, quote-unquote, Satan. Satan, being the left hand of Yahweh God, still exercises Yahweh God's will. And many people miss that as well, that in the Old Testament narratives, the angels would come, and they were usually angels of war, angels of wrath. They were the ones who would rain fire and brimstone on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the people round about would see it as a horrible, horrible atrocity, but yet it was the left arm of Yahweh God bringing it to pass. So it was Yahweh God fulfilling the ultimate promise that he is 
locked within, which is his word, and that is that Yahweh God will send strong delusion, lying spirits, false prophets, and so forth, and he will send destruction as well. But, like Romans 8.28 says, all things do work together, not for everybody, not for every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and not for everyone who believes, but for those who are the called and the chosen according to his purpose. And I think people miss that as well. That like verse number one that I picked, Yahweh God only knowing the Israelites and chastising them, that so also when Yahweh God sends these false prophets, it's so that we can sharpen our own skills and cling only to the word of Yahweh God and not listen to people like Billy Graham, Joel Olstein, etc. Well, the important thing is that to realize is that Yahweh's got it all in hand. I mean, it says, I'm just going to read quickly here from Psalm chapter 2, uh, verse 2. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying in verse 3, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And in verse 4 it says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. You know, it's very easy sometimes to look, look at all the evil machinations of the Jews and to see, you know, terrible things that are happening upon the earth and, you know, all of the... All of the things that the Jews and white traders are doing to remove Christianity from our, our classrooms, from public places, from, 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 from the airways, you name it. But Yahweh's got the situation all, all in hand and he's not worried about it. He's not fretting about it. He's not saying, oh, oh, it's the end of the world. You know, what am I going to do? He's just laughing at all these fools because he knows the end from the beginning. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and Yahweh God will pick who he wants to and choose who he wants to. And I think a good point to, to point out as well is that Yahweh God has reserved for himself 10,000 men who've not bowed knee to Baal as well. And so in the, in the end, it all is a cosmic chess game, if you will, and Yahweh God will win. We know that. I think that's the only thing that man really does know through his word and through verses like Obadiah 118 and so forth is the glimpse of the future great and ter terrible coming day of the Lord is that we win. We know that. And so we have tomorrow's newspaper today, and we know that we're the victors. But knowing that Yahweh God doesn't want us to sit back in complacency and watch Monday night football and not care, that's the whole point. And when Christ is sitting there, I believe, you know, and he tells those on the left, apart from me, m many times I think we overlook and think, oh, that's the godless. Those are the perverts. Those are the drunkards. Those are No, those are people who professed and believed that they were Christians. But they were seen as goats. And Jesus Christ told them, depart from me, I never knew you. That's probably the worst thing Yahweh God could tell any person, because that precedes a blotting and a complete you know, removal of you from the kingdom. And so I think the whole teaching is, is that even though we know that we win and that we as a company or the, the body of Christ overcomes, like Paul says, run the race. A race is a game, and a game needs to be played, and that's the whole point. How are we going to play it? Many of us don't do anything. That's, and, and even within Christian identity, that makes us no different than the modern Christians. Because many people within Christian identity say, well, I'm an Adamite. All Israel saved, and they don't do anything. They have the vilest mouths. They, they drink themselves into a drunken stupor, you know, and they, and they live debaucherous lifestyles. To me, that's no different than the Judeo-Christian who says, well, the Bible, the Old Testament, is a book of the history of the Jews. Therefore, I have no interest in reading it. I'm going to go ahead and sit and watch Monday Night Football. So both of those examples, you know, are wrong examples. And that's where I think the danger of, of judgment comes in a lot of times is that, 
you know, we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and not really worry so much about, you know, all these other people because that's all they do. The Judeo-Christian and the, the, the Pharisee within Christian identity spend all of their time worried about one, what someone else does. And if you mention their name, they'll, you know, write long articles about it. Yes, well, the, the Bible does say to, to occupy until he comes. We, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can occupy Wall Street or occupy um, Washington, but we can, we can occupy our little portion, small little portion of the, of the vineyard, and, and to, to be about our Heavenly Father's business to the, very, to the very best of the abilities and the talents that he's given us. Amen. Amen. Give all we have as well. So I believe you're down to your fifth, aren't you? Yes, and the irony of ironies here, Jeremy, is this, this isn't even from the Bible. So I might get in trouble quoting this. It's from the Apocrypha. Oh, okay. Now, well, that's I, acceptable here. Oh, right. Well, well I don't know, because I know some, some book, not, not all books of the Apocrypha are, are equal. Some, some belong there and some perhaps don't. So I don't know whether this one belongs there or not. You know, where's Bill Fink when you need him? Yeah. <laughs> but um, Bill would certainly be able to tell us all about this one. But... Um, this dovetails with a lot of other verses in the Bible, in the canon, and um, it's from the Testament of Levi, chapter 5, verse 28, and it reads, And the Lord shall rejoice in his children and be well pleased in his beloved ones forever. So what Yahweh is talking about here is his children, us, after Christ has returned, and, you know, we're in the ages, of the ages you know, we're in eternity and this scripture for me just sums up what it's all about, is that um, Yahweh wants his children to be in his company. And what an honor that the God of heaven and earth would want us, want us to hang around him, you know, want us to be around him, want us to sit at his dinner table, want to bless us, want to smile at us lovingly and say, well done, thou good and, save, thou good and faithful servant. You know, well, you know, just the, just the, the awe-inspiring, just, you know, just theme, just aspect of this is just boggles the mind that, you, you know, we're Yahweh's children and he wants us to be with him. I mean, talk about an honor. Yeah, that's a great verse as well because it also signifies the obedience on the part of the children as well. And like we've been covering from Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, where, you know, chapter 12 and so forth about the body of Christ, you know, the members that comprise the body of Christ are all those who recognize that Jesus Christ is the head of that body. So they work together as a body, fitly joined together, and so forth. And part of that is obedience and recognition of an authority, or our Heavenly Father, God. And I think that's where man has the problem many times, is that they want to come along, and they have a real problem with authority, they have a problem with a scripture, they have a problem with something, and they usually take it out and get mad at God. But again, it's God who calls you to understand, or not even to understand, but to obey. Prime example of that is the law. We may not understand why God calls for waste removal. We may not understand why God calls for the stoning of homosexuals. But it's not for us to understand in a lot of ways. It's for us to obey, at least on a spiritual level. And when we put it over, you know, overlay it within our own minds on a spiritual level, God's morality or his law, we're able to better know God and at least God's will for us and why all those things that are outside the kingdom must be as such. They're not going to be there. But I think the point is, is that the sons 
are in subjection to the Father. And many times people within Christian identity even have a problem with it, you know, with, with something God says, like don't judge your brother or esteem every man better than yourselves, and they go out there and they take it out on everybody else. And their their problem isn't really with you or I. The problem they really have is with God and in judging what God dictates and commands us. Well, the thing I love about this verse in particular is it's like a distillation of the entire Bible. It sums up the entire Bible in one simple verse, and that is how Yahweh wants his children to love him. He wants children who want to be with him, and he's going to bless them for eternity as a result. And that's the, that's the Bible story right there. I mean, we can add all you know the various you know intrigues and you know controversies that happened over the year, but if over the years you know through millennia, but if you just boiled it down to one verse, this verse would have to be it, as far as I'm concerned. Exactly, and that's the whole thing. Is God does want to reward those who diligently seek Him and who do good, and I think people miss that as well. And there's two different types of rewards in this night's study. We've been covering the aspect of the spiritual rewards or rewards in heaven. But Yahweh God, you know, transcends both heaven and earth, and that's the whole point. In obedience to God's law, his moral, which in essence can be summed up in obedience to his word, the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation, you know, there's also keys for living a better life now. The food laws are part of that, for example, and waste removal laws and so forth. Those are the reason why God commands them. And people forget that as well as they start looking to the world to come. And, and we shouldn't neglect that because that is what we should be you know, striving for. But at the same time, God can bless us here on earth you know, through our own obedience as well. So if we're obedient, God can bless us here, whether it be crops, whether it be a virtuous woman, whether it be a nice job, and just or just the ability to sustain ourselves in this rebuilt Babylon is a blessing from God. And so what I'm saying is we shouldn't neglect that. We should always be grateful for what God does give us. Well, Jeremy, I think that was an excellent segment. I'll tell you what, I'd love to invite Bill Fink on one day and get get and hear his Desert Island verses. Uh, that that'd make for a great segment as well. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would. And I'm pretty sure we could get Bill on here. I know we've been doing a lot of the YouTube videos and we're finally up to a hundred official releases on both. And I was actually kind of amazed because there's something like six different uh, sermons I've done with Bill. And time flies, I guess, because I was telling my wife, man, I remember doing about two of them, three of them. I didn't remember doing six. But I did do over six shows with them, and it's been about two, three years since I have. So it's about, well, I guess December of 2011, so it's been, you know, almost a year. So it's about time to do another show with Bill. This would be a perfect platform because, yeah, it would be real interesting because Bill would not only give us his five Desert Island verses, but probably take you into the Hebrew, Greek, and the Aramaic and explain exactly why and what they mean, you know. Yeah, that that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, I was looking at your TalkShoe page, the the Covenant People's Ministry podcast page, the other day, and your, I think your sermon tally is up to two hundred and nineteen or something like that. That's a that's a, an impressive figure. Yeah, yeah, it's up there, two hundred and thirty-eight, I think, visible. There's a lot of them that are not even visible from that main page because, like I've mentioned in, in previous broadcasts, there's quite a few things I have done 
that I'm really not super proud of, and a lot of that has to deal with Rabbi Samuelson. But, you know, when when he has a hard time understanding that I have 100,000 listeners a month, he has a hard time understanding that aspect, that when you have over 300, 350 sermons transposed over 10 different audio and video servers, it's really not that hard of a feat to achieve. And so, yeah, it is amazing to look back that in uh, five short years, really the, the girth of that was all preached. And, yeah, it's up to about 350 in total. But a lot of the Ukoi shows, a lot of the Martin Lindsay shows, and a lot of the uh, Michael Burke shows aren't even on that as well because that's the main feed through TalkShoe. It goes to iTunes and everything else, and that's where a majority of the other listeners, you know, who can hear it on all the satellite radios and whatever else they do in cyberspace – listen to it. So that's usually the cream of the crop and why we don't showcase a lot of the stuff with Rabbi Samuelson. You know who I reckon Marty really is? Chaz Bono. Because think about oh. it. Have you ever seen Chaz Bono and Marty together? Never seen them in the same room or the same picture or the same video? And uh, Chaz has the same half a beard that Marty does. So well, I'm convinced Marty is really Chaz Bono. Marty you know is just what, a top puppet for Chaz Bono. That is a really good point. I have never, ever seen a picture of Chaz Bono and Martin Lenza in the same room at the same time. You know what? Well, there you go. Proof. There it is. He's that, Chaz Bono, that's it. undoubtedly. That, that's Marty's standard of proof, and if it's Marty's standard of proof, it's good enough for you and me. Sounds good to me. I really like the Penn Joliet, separated at birth, because he looks like that dude from Penn & Teller. Oh, that's right, and he's, he's a crypto Jew. He has a show called, what's it called, Sunday School or something, where he mocks Christ, and I, I saw a TV show. He's a magician, and he was mocking the Messiah in one of his magic acts. So he's a, he's a real Jew, that guy. And then there's Ira Einhorn. Marty looks like Ira Einhorn, who's known as oh, yeah. Unicorn. He, he killed that lovely white girl, Holly Maddox, you know, and chopped her up and put her in a, in a packing crate or something, a packing trunk, and... Uh, and Marty wants to do similar things to, to, to white girls. So, so I think there's a lot, of, a, a lot in common between him and Ira Einhorn. I think they could have been separated at birth. Could be. Now, I heard that the, uh, the good rabbi, you know, uh, was making the rounds wow. back in the day, but that uh, Martina Samuelson basically, you know, stood still for it all. So, you know, it yes. could well be. Hey, you know, seeing Marty over there on the Antichrist Jew show over there talking about we got a lot in common, that, that right there is telling to me. And that's something that you have brought forth, but sure enough, I heard it for myself. And yeah, I bet. I bet he's got a lot in common with the child of the devil. Well, I mean, what, what further proof do you need? He's on a show with a Jew who he knows is a Jew, welcomes him onto the show, does the rest of the show with a Jew, a, a Jew called Cain, says we've got a lot in common. I mean, why doesn't he just come out and say, I'm a Canaanite, I'm a Jew? Yeah, good point. Because he can't, I think, and that's the whole point, hidden in plain sight, is in a lot of ways they're bound under us, and the enemy is bound under us. In a lot of ways, they've got to tell us what they're doing before they do it. And if you notice, Rabbi Samuelson's really not much different. In fact, it's quite predictable. When you sit there and you mention him, you know, 2% of your entire five-hour radio show, and then he'll go with his sock puppet and write up a whole thing talking about how we're mentioning Marty all the time when he's done probably 250-something shows himself. And he loves all it, Jeremy. And he, he absolutely loves it when we mention his name. Oh, yeah, he does. Of course he does. Of course he does. 
So that's the whole double blaring, double, you know, the hypocrisy of it all. And the only way to really know it is through spiritual gifts and, and being imparted with the spirit of Yahweh God because it's the same way in modern Christianity. How did they really know Joel Olstein's a false prophet? Well, I mean, the average person should know because Joel Olstein never mentions scripture the whole hour he speaks. But the only way somebody's truly going to know Joel Stain or Billy Graham or false prophets is through the Spirit's leading. And what the Spirit will lead them usually out of these mainstream churches and into the underground churches or just directly right back to the Bible. And that's the whole point. If we study to show ourselves approved and we stay within the Word of God, then we'll know when a false prophet or even a fellow Christian identist comes along and says, hey, this is what we should be doing. This is how we should be behaving because we know the morality of God. If God forbids certain things, then when these people come professing our religion and doing the, the most the opposite of that, you could either deduct it down to the fact that they're Pharisees, pretending, and or they're just children of the devil. We shouldn't be shocked. Tares do look like wheat. And the children of the devil, nine times out of ten, will usually always flock to positions of authority or in the pastoral community. And that's where a lot of these pedophile priests come from and a lot of you know these other people who want to come in to the mainstream Judeo-Christian church and say, well, God's not real. You know, that's what they're taught in seminary. Most of these pastors go to seminary school, and the very first thing they're taught, at least here in America, is that the Word of God is allegory. It's metaphor, and it is not to be taken literally. But yet Christian identity teaches that every Word of God is profitable. You mentioned the leading of the Spirit there, Jeremy. That features very, very prominently in this uh, book and series of books I'm writing, right from the opening chapter in this situation that's happening to a young lady and the... The opening chapter, but um, uh, it's it's um, we've got an hour forty five minutes without asking for for callers. Do we have any callers? Yeah, if anybody wants to call in, it looks like there's about twelve fifteen people in the chat room. If anybody wants to call in uh, with theological questions, especially now would be the time to do as such. Of course, that has the anti Rabbi Samuelson clause on that because. We've had numerous complaints from uh, Marty stealing about two hours of uh, airtime, I believe about three weeks ago, rambling on about much of nothing, and a lot of people got lost in that one. In fact, I think I fell asleep during it. I don't. It's amazing. Well, the Bible says to endure until the end, and you did. I would have died long before then of boredom. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I kept shouting over the top of him in that show we did together, not only because it was fun shouting over the top of him, because I just don't want to hear him speak. I mean, so you're only going to hear the same thing again and again. He, he, can't, he, he can't give us the Reader's Digest version. He has to give us the, the unabridged Oxford Dictionary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the only good thing about that was actually carrying it out to the end, and then the last 30, 40 minutes was saved by Lloyd Davies. I was actually kind of glad I got to talk to him about that. So it did work out for good, but yeah, uh, five and a half hours, what was five, almost six hours long? That's just too much. <laughs> that well, almost well, makes wonder, it like the Martin Lindsay telethon, you know? Well, I'm sorry that I wasn't there when, uh, I wasn't on the call when um, Lloyd rang, rang up, because I'd like to know what church he goes to. I don't want this, you know, specific address or anything, but what denomination he's involved in, because on Wednesday nights he goes to Bible studies. I'd love to know what he's what they're actually teaching in in, um, in church, you know, what, what he's studying. I think that would make for a very good topic. Yeah, that's exactly kind of what I was trying to do, you know, on that show, very gently, 
without coming straight out and asking, I was kind of pointing out the differences between Christian identity and Judeo-Christianity, but that's exactly what I wanted to know, is that, you know, there are good churches out there, and I think a lot of people miss that, that if you can go to a good old local community church that does teach, you know, in a roundabout way the racial identity, then stay with that church. That's a pearl of great price. Most of them do not. Most of them are 501c3, tax-exempt. They're not allowed to, to preach anything but government doctrine. But at least here in Brooks, I know for a fact that there's three churches that are over 150 years old, and there's like generations of pastors there. And so they will preach more anti-Obama. They'll preach more anti-race mixing and so forth without even really coming out and saying it. So what I'm saying is a lot of these Wednesday night Bible studies are usually better than the Sunday morning pulpits anyway, because most of those are in the hands of the actual flock. And if I was having one, you know, it would be all meat. It would be all Bible, whereas a lot of times on Sunday it's about the fried chicken. Well, often we come to Christian identity in increments. We don't come in one foul swoop more often than not, and it was the same for me. And the Holy Spirit, I felt the calling of the Holy Spirit to go to that Pentecostal church that I told you about that I used to attend for about 20 20 or so years. And even though they race mixed there, and did a lot of other stupid things. I believe the Lord wanted me at that church at that particular point in my time because I got a good grounding in the the British Israel message from that church, and also it was a very moral church. You know, um, they had a lot of strict rules and that, which I needed at that particular point in my life. So I really felt the calling of Yahweh to to go to that church, and just but just because we're called to a particular church that you know doesn't preach the word as well as it ought to, and the the you know in, in, in the Pentecostal church where I went. There were so many things that they should have preached but didn't. Um, just because Yahweh calls us to, to, to a church like that doesn't mean that he necessarily approves of that church, just that he approves of us being there at that particular point in, in time in our lives because it's a, step, it's a necessary step to the, the, higher, the, the next higher place where we've got to go on the, on, on the theological ladder, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. You know, in the New Testament, Christianity is considered a movement. And that's what I, what I think happens a lot of times is it stops progressing, it stops moving, and people get focused on one doctrine like the Baptists do with baptism or the Pentecostals do with, you know, the book of Acts. And so, yeah, exactly. Whereas Christian identity is moving, and a lot of the people, or at least the detractors that come against it, usually do so on that level. They're the ones who come in and they'll say, oh, well, I don't like this particular pastor or this particular pastor because they're trying to change Christian identity doctrine. When in reality, nobody that I know of or work with is changing any Christian identity doctrine. If anything, we may be reinforcing old doctrines that were you know, brought forth in the 60s by Swift or, or Compare, or even uh, exposing some that weren't necessarily to be taken as doctrine because no man is perfect no man has all truth and that's the whole point when we stop moving and start sitting there saying well so and so wants to teach this and so and so wants to teach that then what good is it you know they're the ones who turn around and say well i'm a comparean no they're not comparean because compare taught that we should progress and Compare didn't have all truth either. So my point is, is the Judeos and many people within Christian identity, they'll, they'll pick their favorite pastor. They say, that's who it's going to be for me. And then they don't progress. They don't grow. They should be able to listen to everybody. 
and grow a little bit from here and a little bit from there, which is exactly what we covered from Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, is that there is many members, and even, even the detractor has a place in that. They may not be children of God. They may be the children of the, of the devil. But through our faith and obedience to Yahweh God, anything Rabbi Samuelson tries to do is going to come to no, no, none, of that, none, none effect, no avail. It never has. And so that's the beauty of it all. Touch not mine anointed. People can learn that lesson now. And even many people who live in squalor in Granby, in a shack, surrounded by filth, being sued by the city, can point their finger and say, Pastor Visser, this and that, but never look inward and see that they're even cursed. They don't even realize that. That's the beauty of Yahweh God and why we shouldn't judge, I think. Well, something I forgot to mention about the, the old Pentecostal church where I went is that I got my first copy of the Protocols of Zion there in their bookshop. And I also got um, that classic book by, um, uh, what's his name, um, Charles Wiseman, who was Esau Edom. Excellent book, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but still an excellent book. But there's something, there's a topic I, I wanted to cover briefly today, Jeremy, about what a difference race mixing makes. Because I, um, as I've told you in the past, I, I grew up in Australia during the, the tail end of the, the white Australia, the, the era of the white Australia policy. And when I was growing up in the 60s and even early 70s here in Oz, um, you hardly ever saw a non-white. I mean, they just weren't anywhere where to be seen. As I've said before, I didn't see my black, first black man until I was 15, and even then it was a visiting American Negro. So, so I grew up really in a, 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 a homogenous paradise, as homogenous as it could get, because we did have what we call, even though we didn't have, you know, non-whites, we had, well, we did in, in one sense, but we had what I like to call off-whites. Yet yeah? we had the the Italians and the Greeks who came over here to immigrated to Australia after the World War II to work on the Snowy Mountain scheme. It was a big hydroelectric scheme we had back in the day, and. Um, and, you know, we used to have a few of those living in the, the community and going to school. And uh, from a distance, they kind of looked the same, same as us. But when you got up close to them, you know, they, they really looked, they had that olive skin and they, they sort of chunky, sort of stout look about them. And, and they acted so differently. You know, we used to call them wogs and spags and dagos, wogs in particular. We used to hate them. We still do, really, because they, even though they kind of, Emphasis on kind of look like, like us. They were so far removed from us as far as their behaviour was concerned. They were, the, the Italians and the Greeks were really rude and uncouth and grasping and greedy. They were really good workers, I'll give them that, simply because you know, they wanted to come out here from their old country to make heaps and heaps of money, and they, and they did. And uh, They used to live, and some of them still do, in what we call here in Australia, wog palaces. They'd get these houses, and they'd, make, they'd, they'd design these hideous, concrete palaces with all these ugly columns and, uh, uh, and they'd often pave their front lawn. Their front lawn would just be one big concrete slab which they'd paint green. They'd, just have, they'd have a single hole in the middle of this slab with a, a single little plant or tree growing out of it. We used to call them wog palaces and, and still do as I said. And uh, yeah, I, I used to work, one of my first jobs was working in a retail store and uh, every every three to six months we'd get a new manager, and a lot of the managers we'd get would be would be either Italians, Greeks, uh, the occasional Macedonian. We 
we white Aussies that used to work, they used to just roll our eyes and groan when we found out that we were getting, say, a, an Italian manager because we knew the Italian manager was really going to lord it over us and be rude and just be just generally unpleasant to work with. And things that really... The things that really struck me about the Italians were the women, just how ugly they were. I mean, I never saw an attractive Italian woman. These these women would come over from the old country and they'd be these stout sort of nut, they'd have sort of a Fred Flintstone face about them, really hideous they were. They used to dress up in all in black to mourn the old country and I'd see them walking down the street and used to think to myself, well, look, if you're mourning the old country so much, why don't you go back there, you stupid looking wog? And I used to, I used to, I used to call them mama wogs because they were just so ugly and just ugh. And, and, and I grew up believing that there was no such thing as a beautiful. Down under where she it's Chaz Bono. It's Chaz Bono. Uh, okay, Get off, hold Marty. On, I'm making an important point here. Okay, I, I had to mute him, and we actually have uh, Ethan Twenty Four on the line as well. But continue on. All right, I'll, I'll be quick, Ethan Twenty Four. And, um, yeah, so I grew up thinking there was no such thing as a, a beautiful Italian woman because all the Italian women that we got over here in Australia seemed to be fashioned out of concrete. They didn't have the lovely hour, hourglass figures that, um, you know, uh, Aryan women had. But then something happened in 1980 that changed all that. We got our first and only multicultural broadcasting network called SBS TV Network. And I used to love watching, watching the, the European movies on, on SBS simply because they all have all these stunningly beautiful European women in various states of undress in these movies. And, of course, being a randy young, young guy, you know, I, I, I was really into that sort of thing at the time. But the thing that really struck me about these movies, Jeremy, were the, were the Italian women in the movies. I mean, the, the Italian women were absolutely awesomely beautiful. I mean, you had blonde, blue-eyed, even redhead Italian women. And I used to think to myself, how can the women in these movies be so beautiful, but the, the, all of the Italian women out here, uh, women out here, be so ugly. And, and then a, a, a friend of mine I worked with said that we got all the peasants, all of the, you know, the, the peasants of the poor stock out here. And I, for years, I went around thinking that that was the case. But, but, but in the back of my mind, I kept thinking to myself, well, surely there can't be, you know, there wouldn't be such a, you know, uh, money couldn't make that much of a difference because all of these beautiful Italian women, they, they look like, you know, Anglo-Saxon Celtic women, Nordic women. The only difference between them and the other women was that they lived in Italy and spoke with an Italian accent. But it wasn't until I started getting into Christian identity that I learnt that the Italians that we, we have over here came from, came from the southern tip of Italy, which was invaded by the Moors around about 800 AD, I think it was. And they, they, the Moors were a mix of Arabs and, you know, darkies from the dark continent. And they interbred with the white Italians, and the result was all the Italians that we got here in Australia and elsewhere across the world. And it was the same with Greece. You know, you get all those dark, wiry-haired, olive-skinned Greeks that um, you know, got some Arab blood in them. So, so it's just amazing, just, the, just the, the staggering difference, just a, a bit of race mixing makes. Yeah, that's a real good point. I mean, anybody who doubts that, just compare your northern Italian to your Sicilian. And that's, <laughs> that's all you really need to, you know, see it a lot of ways. Because the Puerto Rican, for example, I believe is a mix between, what, Negro and Italian as well. Well, have you heard of, you've heard of Golden Dawn, haven't you? 
No, not, well, I've heard the name. I heard Alex Linder yeah. making a fuss about that, yeah. It's, it's supposedly a white nationalist organization in um political party in Greece that are trying to, you know, stem the, the non-white tide over there. But I have to laugh when people call it a white nationalist party. It might be nationalist, but it's not white because the... The, I, I call that the head guy of the Golden Dawn Party, the werewolf of Greece, because have you ever seen one of those werewolf movies where you, you see that classic shot of the, you know, they use time-lapse photography, where you see a guy turning into a werewolf and he starts off as a regular guy, and then he'll go to that intermediate stage of, you know, being sort of half man, half, half werewolf, where his face will start to get really hairy and his teeth start to get pointed, and then he'll, then he'll, he'll turn into a full-blown werewolf. Well, the guy from... The, the guy from the Golden Dawn Party looks like a, a, a guy in that intermediate state of being, state of, stage of being a werewolf. You know, he looks part half man, half werewolf, but he, he's certainly not all white. So I really have to laugh at people who, who, who look on these people as white nationalists. I mean, they're, they're certainly nationalists, I'll give them that, but they're, they're sure as heck not white. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, like the old Hammer Horror Flicks. That, or, or even American Werewolf in London, that inner intermediary, right in the middle when they're sitting there and they're half furry and they're half man. Yeah. Exactly. All right, how about we bring Ethan 24 on? Okay, yeah, I, actually, Ethan 24, uh, do you have anything to say, brother? Hello, hello. Um, yeah, guys, um, <clears throat> no, I just want to say, <clears throat> you know, hi, my name's um, um, Ethan Scroggins, and uh, I've listened to you, I guess, uh, off and on, I guess now for uh, a couple of years now. You're off. Uh, you're offline for, for 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 I guess for a few months, and I, I guess now you're back on for. It's been about a few months now, so I'm you know I'm glad to see you back, and just want to say you know thanks, and I you know always enjoy your shows, and usually and excellent. Ethan, I've seen your name around the track somewhere. Where have I seen your name? I uh, beg your pardon. I've, I've seen your I, name. I heard Have you. I seen your name in chat room? Uh, do you go to Bill's chat room? Do you or? Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I usually I used to. I mean, I, I <clears throat> mostly I go to you know Eli James. I uh, go to a few others. I, you know, I I I do like the American Nazi Party. So I I kind of was disappointed uh, how you don't like Rocky Sirota. But. Um, you know, that's you know, we all have different opinions, so uh, you know, you're welcome to yours and Yeah, but, uh, I can't yeah, say I'm a big fan I can't say I'm a big fan of Rocky, but if you think he's an okay guy, well you know you've got to go with um what works for you, so don't try. mind me. Sure. And I try other um you know, Christian identity uh shows and um but uh yeah, I uh, I I like, you know, sometimes more more Bible reading, you know, or or kind of news topics. But you guys, you guys usually do a pretty good job. You guys are just coming back on, you know. So um, sometimes I like to uh, discourse some of the uh, stuff in the King James Bible, which is like so outlandish, you know. It's just like um, <clears throat> like uh, things that so stu- you know tore me wrong, you know, in in regular Judeo churches and. Um, stuff like in John 4.20, I'll say, you know, you must worship, you know, God in spirit and truth. And John 4.21, they'll say salvation is from the Jews. And I just became so, dis- you know, crazy with that. I I forsook it all, and, and I really went into extreme white nationalism. And then I kind of found Christian identity out of it, which I actually found it, you know, kind of prior, prior to that. I got it. Mostly from Mein Kampf, I felt that 
Adolf Hitler truly did understand. Now, he didn't fully come out and say um, that the Aryan people, but he really did. He really fully believed, as I did believe, and you could see it, that the, the Hitler youth were so perfect that they had to, these type of Aryan people had to have be the children of Adam in some way, shape, and form. Now, Adolf Hitler knew that. And, of course, I didn't, you know, knew, I see I before that, but I picked it up, and so I kind of would like to, more of those teachings to be expelled. You know, there's so many more of, um, you know, uh, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. I mean, just so plain in the King James Bible, which is just, it's it's more than heresy. I, I actually, I, I call the King James Bible the most evilest book, one of the most evilest books on the planet, which is, I, it's kind of what seems heresy, but um, if, if you see it the way I see it, 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 it's, I mean, it's just total blasphemy. So I, I kind of like more of, of, of those kind of verses could be expelled, and there's numerous of them in, 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 in these new um um, you know, English Bibles, uh, uh, which are obviously all taken out or translated from the King James. Well, the problem with the King James Bible is it's like a schizophrenic Bible. It's suffering from a, um, a split oh, personality yeah. disorder. Exactly what I said about 420 to 421. I mean, it's like so absurd if you took that off to most people. I mean, I remember being in like so many people would say, Ethan, don't you feel that? The Bible contradicts itself, and I really had nothing else to say because it does. I knew, I mean, unless you're totally just a liar, I mean, I, I couldn't say it didn't. I would just say, you know, well, uh, you know, it was just mistranslations. I didn't really understand it. But but when you really do understand these verses, that I believe that salvation comes from Judah or Judea, which was, of course, uh, I believe the land which Christ came from. So it's a totally different verse than salvation comes from this group of people from Tel Aviv or Brooklyn or, you know, whatever. Exactly, because what the Jews have done, they've been very crafty, is that they've, they've been very dissatisfied, as, as you would be, for being cast as history's villains. You know, the villains in this story, they don't want to be seen as the villains, they want to be seen as the heroes. So they've swapped their role right. for ours. So we become oh, the Gentiles, have. we become the, the villains, and they become Yahweh's chosen people. And, 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 oh, yeah, and, and I know you, that you have that verse, which is very famous in Christian identity, you know, 118. And, and I've never always liked that verse, as so many people have. And, and, and because I believe the Jews did such a great job. I believe the white race did a bad job. So, I mean, to say that all the Jews are going to hell, I mean, I, I think they should get a pat on the back. And the white race, the majority of them really should be going to hell because they failed. They really failed the test. But um, yeah, there is so many scriptures, man, that could be expelled in, in, in Christian identity, and and how I fell from it and and got into I think uh, white power type of groups. I became a skinhead, and it kind of opened me up to a world when I came Christian identity. And I, of course, found Pastor Pete and people like that, how much that brought me down and how much and how much I feel for the 18, 19, 20-year-old kids who are lost in the inner city as I was in, in Long Island. And you're the only white guy in the block. What do you do? There's no way out. There's nowhere to talk to. I know that those people right now are the lost tribes in the House of Israel. And most of them, like the Pastor Pete people, 
they always wanted like to convert the Judeos, and they're always talking bad about the white power people. But yeah, that's true. But in a lot of sense, these people are the lost tribes of the house of Israel, and and I knew that when I was a kid because the Bible says it so blankly. What what is hated in this world, God in some way, shape, and form embraces and loves, and is a part of Him. And what the world exalts, God absolutely hates. And, and and you can go from China, I don't want to talk your guys' ears off, but all the way to California, to the North Pole, to the South Pole, there's like one universal thing that's hated. I mean, it's just obvious. And of course, that's a swastika. It's Adolf Hitler. It's the Confederate flag. It's this type of white power or white group in some way, shape, and form, which of course, Christian identity brings forth. But, um, yeah, so like well, the I said... the swastika is so hated... Because it symbolizes a very healthy and robust mix of Christianity and uh, white racialism, which, oh, is what, um, yeah. which is what Hitler espoused. And when the Jews see that, they just die. You, you know, they, they want to drop down dead from fear because it, it represents their end. It represents Obadiah 118 to them, their future Holocaust. Well, I hope so. And, and, and it, I really think, but the Bible also says differently for me too because I, I think that the Bible says uh, in judgment starts with the house of Israel and it also will end with the house of Israel. So a lot of th people I think in see, I think the blacks are going to get it and perhaps maybe some of them will, but I don't feel that they're under the law. I think that the white race is going to be judged. So, and I think that the white race will be judged upon, um, how you treated others in the white race, not so much about what you knew and how many Bible verses like Jack Van Impey or like Pastor Pete and um, who would talk bad about CI all the day and, you know, and, and like skinheads or things like that and dress up in a $1,500 uh, freaking suit and have a $150 haircut. I mean, this guy was like so far from reality. And man, back in the 90s, he was never like that. He like totally transformed and... Um, I'm sorry to see him die, but actually, I, I, I really disliked him. And I know that you embrace him. I used to watch him all the time on Scriptures for America and see it all the time, that he, the things that he would do. Of course, you know, well, Yahweh, well, I mean, well, that was like the devil. Well, no matter who you look at in Christian identity or somebody perhaps sort of on the periphery of Christian identity like Pete Peters, there is, none of us is perfect. The perfect white person, certainly the perfect Christian identist, has yet to be, in, be, be invented. So um, well, there were well, some things about um, Pastor Pete that, that I didn't go along with, but I, I think overall he did, he, he did a fairly good job. But, you know, you've really got to, you know, to find your little sort of, sort of niche in Yahweh's kingdom, you've really got to seek him and just, you know, look to his word and look to his spirit to get guidance as to, to where the you know, your place in his scheme of things is. But but we, uh, I know some people in Christian identity do tend to look down on some people in, in white, nation, white nationalism. Uh, I, I've had a tendency to do that myself in the past, you know, thinking, well, look, these white nationalists, they're, they're atheists, you know, they, they don't believe in Yahweh, you know, what, what good are they? But they are my people. They are my my kin. So, you know, I have to reach out to them. I've got a responsibility by Yahweh to do that. And I can't go around abusing them because, um, you know, that's not going to... Uh, I'll certainly criticise people like Rocky Sahader if I think they're doing the wrong thing, but I, I certainly don't look down on 
white nationalists who, who maybe haven't come to a realisation of, of God at this point in time because, um, you know, there but for the grace of Yahweh, go I. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not white nationalist. I mean, yeah, I, I just, I always support... So how would you I describe mean, yourself, wasn't. Ethan? What, what sort of category do you fit in, if you don't mind my asking? Well, I definitely was white power skinhead all the way, I mean, for... For, for several years, and, and then I kind of found CI, and then, of course, I, I, I found a different way. But uh, I still do support those acts. You know, I do do, I, and that seems absurd for a lot of people, but if my government, as I said before, is not willing to do anything about the crack dealer on the street, people graffitiing my block, the prostitute on the corner, if the cops are not willing to do that, then citizens in some way, shape, and form have to take arms, and if the 80-year-old guy ain't going to do it and the nigger across the street ain't going to do it, guess who's, guess who's left, okay? <laughs> me. Or no one. Okay, so I decided me. And, um, I, you know, I, it, it, it didn't really work all, out all that well. And I'm very grateful I found God, but I definitely find, I see myself as a Christian identist, and I, I try to feel Christianity is is just the is is the teaching definitely of of and for the white race and and I wish uh, it was more these teachings could be brought out through the King James Bible like I said the the, the mistranslate which have been done numerous times but um, you know far I think Doctor Swift did a great job which is one of my favorites even though some of his sermons are obviously a bit scratchy um, but. Uh, um, well, Bill Fink has gone over the, the various areas in the King James, not all of them, because there's literally thousands of them many times. But um, yeah, that's true. no matter what, um, what version of the Bible you get a hold of, it's not going to be perfect. And the Bible is more a book of spiritual things, something, something to be spiritually digested than it is to be intellectually digested, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel, I feel that. Yeah, okay, so do you, did you want to say something, Jeremy? Well, I'm just saying that's a really good point, you know, in that the King James quote-unquote perversion, it sure as hell has a lot. And I think the reason for that is because unlike a lot of the latter-day versions like Ethan was, was talking about that stem from the King James, the King James version wasn't translated. It was literally transliterated. And that's the difference, is, is, is they just took the words from the Hebrew, the Greek, Aramaic, transliterated them, and added italics to try and make it make sense. Whereas a lot of the older or the newer versions, I should say, that have come out in the last 50 years or so, all try to make the King James make, you know, read easier. And so a lot is lost in translation. Oh, I'm sure. And um, as I believe, Pastor uh, Pastor Rister, that um, the original King James Bible was, was like 1516 or something of that nature, and it was retranslated several times, like uh, in like the 1700s and the 1800s. So sometimes, I don't know if that's true, but into what we regularly have now is the King James Bible. So it's not even like the real 1516, if that's yeah, that's if yeah. That's no, you're actually true. pretty accurate. I mean, the date for the authorized is technically 1611. Oh, 1611. But, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, but what I'm saying is is the Masoretic text and everything that it stemmed from was essentially based on the German Bible, the, the, the Gutenberg, and so forth. And so what came, came out, the King James, was actually a work stemming all the way back probably 500 years before that. 
and then the King James came out. And unfortunately, it is based on the Masoretic text, and so in a lot of ways, that's to a fault as well. And then they they take the Apocrypha out, which makes it even <laughs> which makes it even less. But in a in a way, and I've brought this up before as well. In a way, that's good because a lot of these books, like Enoch and Jubilees and Jasher, because they've been taken out of the quote unquote canon, I believe they've been altered with least and therefore they're actually the most racial of a lot of the books yeah i believe dr swift used to uh, refer to a book called the alexandrian bible and which i've never come across and i don't even know if i even pronounce it correctly but um i you know i don't really know it i i a lot of these books it's just it's, it's such a shame you know and then and, and i've talked to uh several people about it how uh so many great people just went down such a right path, but kind of wrong path. People like Commander Rockwell, um, Dr. Uh, William Pierce, and even people in the, in the skinhead movement who I did like a um, long time ago, but um, Bill Riccio and um, a few others who just uh, could never see, or, or even like David Lane, uh, of course, and, and Robert J. Matthews, um, who just could not, who were such amazing people who had a, a you know incredible courage, and um, some of them were even still alive, um, but just could never see uh, the how just and just total brainwashing because they're just saying this is the word of God and whatever's in here is holy, whatever's in here is literally from God. To even question it is is almost blasphemy. So I mean, to question it, and of course, if you're a white man, you're going to say, you know, like I told you before, those verses like. Screw you! This is this is the this is the devil's book, you know. Yeah. Ethan, you mentioned Bill Riccio. I, I think I saw a documentary. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he was a very religious fellow, wasn't he? Well, uh, he was an Odin. He's an Odinist. I mean, I don't know. You know, I mean, I oh, maybe I, I have the wrong guy, a different Bill because I, I saw a documentary about this guy that led some skinheads in his oh. very. He seemed to be Christian identity to me, but obviously I've got the the wrong guy. Sorry about that. Well, well, Bill Riccio, possibly. I mean, he's definitely he's a member of the KKK. So, I mean, I'm just, which is a Christian, you know, slash, you know, type of organization. I mean, it's, it used to be, you know, see, I, 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 you know. And I saw that documentary as well. It was called uh, Skinheads USA, and I think it was on HBO, and it was to document Bill Riccio, and and they they more or less framed it to make him look really. Kind of to make Bill look pretty bad, but I think most white nationalists could see right through it and see that Bill was cool. But they would focus on those aspects where he'd go like "Hail Billy, Hail Billy" because it was Billy's birthday, <laughs> and, and tried to make him look buffoonish. When in reality, but yeah, I believe he was an Odin. Well, I mean, Bill. I mean, you have to. I mean, Bill. You mean you know he, he's from the you know he's from the old South. I mean you know he's 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 got a long accent. He grew up in the sticks. I mean he's not like you know he, he didn't go to Harvard. You know so everyone's going to make fun of him. A little bit, but um, you know, I'm just trying to say those type of people who had a great heart and great courage, who's able to walk down, you know, uh, uh, you know, complete uh, Birmingham, Alabama, which is like you know 80% black, screaming, you know, white power, and that type of heart, just wasn't able to see um, the truth that I believe that the, the Bible was not the devil's book, and that these churches, even though he was right, I mean, I could see it how they are the devil's churches, but. It's not the Bible, and that the Bible is the white man's book, <laughs> and I believe that. These, I believe that 100%. In these, these skinhead groups, um, Ethan, 
Uh, are most of the people predominantly atheists or Odinists or Christians? What sort of the um, the religion? Oh, definitely atheists. I mean, like I'm saying, because I mean that that's the devil's book. <laughs> it says it plain and simple. I mean, what are you talking about? Salvation's from the Jews. John four twenty one. It says it plain as day. The King James Bible. You know, anyone who sees that, anyone who unless you want to go, it's from God or this. I don't care where it's from. That's yeah, that's that a good book point. is Satan. That's from the devil. That's exactly so, the mindset of Alex Linder as well. Is once they accept the belief that the book, is, the Bible, is about the Jews, then suddenly the Bible and Christianity becomes the devil. I know exactly what you're saying. And people, I think, fight too much in CIA. I feel bad. Some people are like good people. I felt like uh, Tommy Metzger, who I believe used to be actually in Christian Identity, and David Lane, who are I felt I've seen some interviews, just most amazing, amazing guys and. Uh, I've never met, personally met Tommy Metzger, but I used to follow his website all the time when I was 18, 19. Uh, I believe Resistance or whatever it was back, uh, you know, back then. He's a very likable fellow, Tommy Metzger. I, I yeah, like him, he had a, he had a, he's a great speaker, you know. He's, you know he's... Yeah. Yes, so you quite, make a, quite a few white nationalists that, that used to be involved in Christian identity but aren't anymore. I'm sure Jeremy would know a few of those, wouldn't you, Jeremy? Sure, yeah. Which I yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is Ethan's got it right on, hit the nail right on the head in the aspect of within Christian identity, when we're instructed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that usually is the playing field right there, and that's what makes the Christian identity pastor's job quite difficult in a lot of ways. Is because unless a person really does have eyes to see or ears to hear, they're going to be on the opposite end. They're going to be like VNN and Stormfront, and they're going to believe the Bible's a book of the Hebes, and that you know. Until that comes, Christian identity is always going to be a byword. But the irony is, is almost historically, almost all white nationalist groups were Christian-based, historically, up until recently. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, Dr. Swift was, uh, you know, KKK, you know, and I, Temporary, I think, was just, you know, too old to really do any, you know, join too many groups. He might have been part of the John Birch Society, for all I know, but... Yeah. Great teachers, and that's the whole point, is trying to reach some of those people as well. It's kind of hard. It becomes hard because, like, I've been banned from BNN when I challenged Alex Linder to a debate, and it was essentially over the same exact thing. He was, oh, the Bible is the book of the Jews, and all the CIA morons don't have any brains. They're all too cowardly to debate me. And I was like, I'll debate you, Alex. And I, I basically got banned for that. And so it becomes kind of hard then, too, because you can't really go and reach them anymore. But they do come, and that's the point. I've, I've met people that were skinheads and became CI or even people like Brian Wright who were CI and then went out and became Odinists or skinheads later on. So it really kind of ranges. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely say, I, I used to do the course, I uh, read the White Man's Bible um, with Creator, and so I used to really like Matt Hale, and I just really, those things just totally resonate with me, and then I just didn't see CI. and I don't know how I found I just I found uh, Dr. Wesley Swift, and and I found uh, one of the top shoes on uh, this person on James Wigstrom, who now I he obviously is off now. But then I found other talk shoes, and it's like, wow, this is the coolest thing. <laughs> and then uh, Airy Nations came on talk shoe, and then uh, there was just other people, which is off now. And then American Nazi Party, and uh, other Christian, you know, uh, they had uh, White Man on a Mission, and a few other shows. I was like, man, it's the coolest. It's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> White Man yeah. on a Mission. I haven't haven't heard of that one. I might have to yeah. add that to the Christian Identity podcast. I've 
Well, I, he's he only did one show. He was going to do another show. I haven't seen him on, but there was a few others at the time. He was going back. I've been on for a few years. I'm 26 now, and I've been on since I was about 23, or at least, you know, even, you know, so it's been a few years, even before. I call my name Ethan24, so he's been 24 when I put it on. But, you know, thanks so much. You know, much for uh, talking. Um, you know, talking to me, and I uh, just want to uh, say I support you guys. And um, even though we disagree, maybe sometimes, you know. <laughs> um, um, you know. Well, we're not perfect, so we we can be wrong. Um, there'd have to be something wrong with us if we couldn't say that we were wrong from time to time, or to apologise for something. So, um, you know, being wrong keeps us humble. You should you should call up Rocky on one of his shows. See what do you think? I mean, I think mean, he's a really intelligent. I mean, compared to most people, I mean, compared to the other two, I mean, organizations, which would be Aryan Nations and NSM, I mean, Morris Gillette, I mean, I mean, forget about it, and uh, Jeff Shoup, and there's no reason to even talk about it. So, I mean, compared to those two, Rocky is definitely the most disciplined, he's the most organized, and I think he's the most intelligent. And I think yeah, you'd, the problem uh, with Rocky is that he yeah. attacks so many people, and he he wants to um Only two. Only he two wants two to do with non-whites, and that's something that we really who? shouldn't do. Morris Morris Gillette was called with the wire man. Even Pastor Pastor Eli James knows that. You can call, you can email him. Alan Truitt found it. He left the organization. Jeff Shoup is married to a Mexican woman. Um, okay, so I mean, if there's only three major ones, which are those besides obviously other like off branches like old bolts front or something. You know, yeah, I, I mean it's NEP and NEP is run by Rocky and I think it's the best. And I think you'd love to talk to you. I mean if you're gonna choose pick on one, it definitely which shouldn't be Rocky. And Rocky just picks on the two because they these are not I don't think he really picks on the people, but they've done some bad things. I mean if you if you read the podcast, I mean of Ethan, are you a member of the INP? No, uh, well, if I did join one group, it would definitely probably be NAP, no question. I mean, it's a political, it's actually a movement that it's not, which I always saw most of these groups like KKK and NA, um, oh, NA, it's like kind of like, you know, social white power groups, you know, you you know, we hang out, we do church, you know, we maybe read a Bible, we have a cookout, <laughs> It's kind of like a social group, you know. But NAP to me is like an actual political thing. It's something that's moving, that actually wants, you know, get involved, whatever, you know, be a dog catcher, you know, whatever, <laughs> volunteer at a church, get into some type of organization where where we can put our views and, and have some type of power. Obviously, running for president is is foolish. It's not, it's ridiculous. But running for, you know, let's say a school board, that's reality, and that's attainable. Those type of things, that's that's meaningful to me. Instead of getting off of the, of like what I was doing, you know, white power type of stuff, or, and stop just reading the Bible and praying, but, you know, put on a suit and, you know, maybe try to do something better in, in your community, and especially if you have those type of viewpoints and ideas, you can really, really, you know, help things. And um, well, well, I'm all for that, but if Rocky... If Rocky didn't go around attacking people all the time, other groups all of the time, not just the, uh, you know, Jeff Shoots groups, but other groups and other individuals, and if um, I, I mean, those he, are the only wanted, two that, he, if I, he wanted to keep, if just let me finish, if he wanted to yeah. keep a, a fair distance from from non-whites, he wouldn't have any issue with me. Not that oh. I, I think he's really concerned about what Obi says, but but I, I think the idea that he wants to reach out to non-whites to 
to get donations is is suicidal. Why, why, why would you be offended by that? I mean, like, like Rocky said, I mean, when people are offended by that, you can understand their heart, and their heart is, I mean, if if a Muslim, let's say if a rich Muslim, as Rocky said, came up to you and gave you a million dollars, and you said, oh no, you're not white, or put your nose up in the air and stick it up and say, oh, you're not white, screw you, that's ridiculous. I mean, you look well, well, up well, in the corner. Ethan, Ethan, I'm, I'm being sort of a, a, a bit of an agenda here. Have you really come on? Have you come on here to 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 defend uh, the ANP? Because on the one hand, you're saying that your Christian identity, but then on the other hand, you're, you, you're saying that you would accept money from non-whites. So, so are you Christian identist, or what are you really? You would accept money, or are you just someone coming on to have a lender? Are you are you are you are you serious? That doesn't make any sense to me. That's the, the, that's oh, well, I don't care if it doesn't make any sense to you. You know, the Bible says we ought to obey God, not man. I'm not going to accept money from non-whites. I don't want any dealings with them. They, they're those people who are a curse to our people. I mean, well, you say your Christian it's, identity. It's, you must be familiar with Deuteronomy 28 that says that they're a curse in our land. Accepting their money is a bad thing. Having anything to do with them is a bad thing. Well, uh, well, I mean, you, you have to understand the situation. I mean, okay, we're not living in the Third Reich here, and this ain't the old South. And and the, and and since we are in the situation, and since basically every American city is about eighty percent Negro, we're going to have to deal with these people. And putting your head in the sand and saying, "Well, I will not deal with them." No, we the don't have to deal so, with them. That's ridiculous. I, I live, okay, I live, in, a, live, in, I live in a place that um, is heavily so non-white, and I'm not going to invite. I'm not going to invite these people around to my place for dinner. I'm not going to have well, anything to I do with them. Rocky if I can avoid them, I shall avoid them. If I have to work with them, well, that's just too bad. But I, I'm not going to accept money from them, and I'm not going to be friends to them. You're They're not, not my people. Money. My people are white people. That's what Yahweh's told me to um well, that's what to, to attend to. I mean, is my brethren, is not my white, I mean, not Asians, not not any organization. Not, okay, I just support it. But number number two. Uh, Rocky never said they can be members or anything of that nature. He just said oh, but they somebody... will be members. Come on, the guy's a con artist. He's out to destroy the ANP. That's the whole thing. But, I mean, dealing with non-whites, that's absolutely insane. Everybody of the NAP has always talked, negotiated, or done things just the way every group has from now until day until they're finally gone. And that's just the way it's going to be, whether it's the KKK, whether it's the NEP, or whether it's this group, that group, or any other group, you're going to have to deal with them because they're there, unless you are like... You don't have to deal with them. You don't have to make them a part of your organization or accept money from them. Why do you have to deal with them? The whole point is to be separate from them. Ethan, we've got to be separate from these people. Uh, They're not our friends. They can't help us. You know, we're not going to march in lockstep with, with, with... Blacks and mestizos yeah, take back our lands. I mean, it's just insane. insane. And, and, and opening well, the doors by no, accepting see, money from them will lead to that. I mean, it'll destroy the ANP. And even though I can't stand rocket to I do have a lot things. of respect for some of the people in ANP because I'm sure that they're out there to do the very best for oh, their, no, there's some really, really for good their people white people, and God bless them for it. But dealing, dealing with non-whites is absolute insanity and it's suicidal. There is no dealing with what if some it's a donation button, okay? There's well, if you're accepting like, money from them, you're you're dealing it's, with it. It's a credit card, and, and you must have you, some it contact It doesn't matter with them. if you're black, white, yellow, and purple. If you want to give twenty dollars, guess what? The same way at the corner store. 
you're black, white, yellow, purple, you want to buy this, that, or other, well, $20. Why, Ethan, would a non-white want to donate money to the American well, Nazi Party? Because, essentially, again, anti-non-white. They have. Number two, they will. And number three, why wouldn't they? Because it's really the best well, order. Why wouldn't they? The because option. it's a white organization. Hitler's, Hitler's Third Reich was a white organization that espoused white values, white ideals. Promoting blacks and mestizos and Jews. I mean, for goodness sake. And you want to allow that into the ANP. I, I mean, it's just suicidal. What are you talking Jeremy, about? What, Jeremy, that have Jeremy, to do with what, what are your thoughts button? on this? <laughs> what does that have to do with the donation button? That, that's, 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 that's where you jump. And that's Jeremy, you I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on this. Admittedly, I'm not very familiar with Rocky Saheda outside of what I've heard. He's on talk show, almost talk show. He's, he's, he's very, a very well-spoken, and basically he is the counterpart to a lot of these Pastor P people with the tattoos, the beer bellies, the screamers, the six million mores. This is not that type of person. And so they can't do that. And then when they do that, I mean, he's kind of the opposite. He has no tattoos. He's a veteran. He's this. He's educated. Blah blah blah. He's also a scumbag. Well, you know, he's you know, we all are false. But he uh, goes around attacking people, and he wants non-whites to come into his movement. That's absolutely insane. Who is he attacking? Now, now, Ethan, I'm getting the impression from you, Ethan. Ethan, I'm getting the impression from you that you really rang up to have a bit of a lend of us. That you're not really serious about this. You're just doing this to get a rise out of us. Is that true? Because, I mean, if you're a Christian about? identist, you don't sound like a very sincere Christian identist at all. And any Christian identist that said he, he'd want any dealings with non-whites isn't a Christian identist as far as I'm concerned. So I'm just wondering really where you're coming from. I mean, are you really concerned well, about I mean, this? Well, I mean, that's just your having opinion of the day. I mean, like, it was your opinion to call Rocky and Inkin, you know. Uh, I, what I would, I would say I am a white man who feels that the Bible is for the white race, and I feel that's Christian identity. I also feel that a lot of the Bible, like I told you, is mistranslated, and I wish kind of the show would be for that kind of retranslation um, <laughs> to expose, you know, the the lies of the Judeos. Yeah, well, you're sort of rattling off that. You're rattling off the shtick there, but it doesn't really sound very sincere to me. I, I think you've you've rung up with an agenda. I mean, you might be just having a lend of us, or you might be sincere about um, what what you believe, but I, I, I doubt it. No, so, I told um, peace, man. I didn't mean any, I didn't mean any disrespect, and you know, I just uh, uh, you know. I, well, well, well coming on here praising Rocky Sahader is probably like throwing a uh, a lit match into a can of petrol, as far as I'm concerned. Especially saying that um, you know having non-whites in the movement is a good thing. Well, I mean, you know, well, that's, well, just, because, a, because that's because just a red red rag. Well, Rocky, man, you, you said things that, that were just untrue. And Rocky's a cool guy, and NAP, I think, has some. Well, what did I say? Maybe it's not all true, but it has. What did but, I say that was untrue? Well, I think you call it Rocky, uh, I think a nincompoop was, I think, a little disrespectful. Well, I think if he's going to accept non-whites, right. I think he's going to accept non-whites into his organization, even because in a uh, vicarious way. I, mean, I, then I think it's, it's a bad, bad thing. And, and, you know, now that I look at it, I, I think perhaps he isn't a nincompoop. I, I, I take it back. I think he's a very smart cookie. He's doing what he's doing to destroy the AMP from within. I can't understand how somebody talking about a donation button is, is I mean, that's just ridiculous. First and foremost, I think one of the most amazing people I've ever read, which really motivated me into, like, motivating me into Christianity, 
uh, real Christianity was Commander Rockwell, who really changed my life. And that's one type of person who I would have given my life for. I would have joined that organization without a drop in the hat if I was oof, amazing, 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 amazing human being. And uh, he dealt with, because you have to deal with them, they're here. And so he spoke between, no, you obviously, do not you already have to know deal the stories. And so, I mean, that's, we do that's not all have to deal with them. We do not have to accept money from them. Because there are blacks living in my suburb, doesn't mean I have to invite them around to my place or have any dealings with them at, at all. I mean, this idea that we must deal with them is ridiculous. And it just really hasn't got a leg to stand on. So, uh, you know... Well, I think I, I, I guess I guess if that's the, the 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 mind frame of that we have no political solutions, we have no way out except prayer in the Bible. Um, you know, of course that's going to be accepted. But if we if you're going to have a type of mind frame, you know, that if you just or you're tired of you know uh, the white Zionists and the black Zionists, uh, you know Zionist A, Zionist B you want a solution besides taking up arms, then it's going to have to be done um, some type of way. It's going to be from the ground roots. And I think the NAP uh, has that philosophy. I, I don't know if that's the best, but... It's the ANP, not the NAP. Well, uh, you... <laughs> you, you, couldn't even get the, you couldn't even get the name right, Ethan. But, um, well, I tried. Look, well, was I, nice I, I, I don't guys. know... Uh, I think we're being had here, Jeremy, but I, I will say something. I, I don't believe there's any political solution to, to our ills. That doesn't mean that we can put our head, heads in the sand and not get involved in activism in any way. But if we think that we're going to, you know, take back Washington through, through the ballot box, I mean, that's just insanity. Sure. So sure. I mean, obviously, in the way of what we have now, obviously, like I said, A, B, and, you know, B, S, <laughs> you know, C, whatever that is, maybe Ron Paul, but... Anyway, you know, it's has to. You can't start there. You just have to start low. So, you know, I think uh, I think we do have a shot to change, like local communities, and I think people do. I mean, Boxu changes people. Boxu has, you know. So, I mean, that's maybe something small, but. So, Jeremy, do we have any other callers? Looks like Rabbi Samuelson's on the line, but you know how that is. We don't want to let Amy Rose on or she'll troll it. All right. Well, we might just round out the show with just you and me having a chat, I think, Jeremy. What do you reckon? Yeah. All righty, guys. Take care of yourselves. Have a good night. Well, definitely. Thanks for calling in, Thank you, Ethan, I think. I think he was having us on, Jeremy. I could kind of hear it in his voice, but, um, yes, I, I, I doubt that that was a very sincere call. Well, I know this week I'm going to go ahead and check out this Rocky Saheda dude since I've heard so much about him. I think the only thing I really know of him is a few articles I read on White Reference, you know, uh, webpage. But if what you're saying is true, I don't I don't really know about taking money from non-whites because I don't really see the, the use of it. I do hear every now and again that the Japanese support David Duke, which... Well, you know, who knows how that works. But according to David Duke, he gets quite a few submissions, a lot of money from the Japanese, and actually has put out his struggle or his book in the Japanese language. So it is kind of interesting to see how universally even a lot of the mud flaps hate the Jew too, you know? Well, as far as I'm concerned, Jerry, Jeremy, it's not by might nor by power nor by donations from non-whites, but by Yahweh's spirit. Uh, the idea that we should be beholden to non-whites in any way, shape, or form is ridiculous. I mean, can you see 
the prophets going out to any of the Old Testament kings and saying, oh, look, you've got to accept money from this non-white and that non-white, and you've got to do, you know, got to do this and you've got to do that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, it is quite interesting how similar, and I think I pointed that out before as well, is that um, Bill White seemingly almost did the same thing. He started opening it up to uh, a lot of different things by way of donations, you know. But, yeah, I agree with you when it comes down to it. That politics, very rarely, very rarely. Unless, I mean, 100 years ago, you could be in America, you could be a Christian politician, you know, and a segregationist. And But like he kind of pointed out as well, is now in this day and age, I don't really know how far you could even get at a local level because it's like even if you're a local police officer and you join the police force with all the good intentions in the world, those type of rookie police officers are really only have good intentions for the first year or so before they become, you know, part of the brotherhood of cops. And then they pretty much get corrupted inwardly. And that's seemingly what happens. Even if you start at a local level, by the time they reach the, the state level, they're already corrupted, at least by way of politicians. By the time they're governors like Schwarzenegger, like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, <laughs> they're already far gone. And by the time they're presidents, they're just puppets, basically, you know, and have Congress with their hand up their bottom side, basically making them talk like Marty Sock puppets. Yeah, well, the problem with the political system is that, well, the Bible says it's, part, it's the beast, isn't it, really, in one sense. But, and the Bible says it can make war with the beast. Uh, I mean, as long as the Jews control the mainstream media, no one except anyone that they approve is going to get into major political office. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's much like Hollywood as well, like I've pointed out. If you're, if you're not a member of the tribe or at least accepted by a member of the tribe like a kaika like you're not going to make it in hollywood but here in america you know year in and year out every decade there's tons of women or girls who graduate high school and leave the middle you know the mid-east or the midwest of, of of america and go to california with these dreams of becoming a movie star i mean it's been this way since the 20s and the sad thing is is once they get to hollywood they find that out quickly that if you're not a member of the tribe you're not really going to make it in and the only type of work that is available to them sadly oftentimes is the jewish pornography field and that's where they go and that's another attack i believe you know that the the jew uses through their media is that you know that they always try to portray like we're giving the people what they want if you were to sit there and question these new shows like like new normal family or the you know family guy or all these shows that are basically you know affront on the white christian family the jews will usually always retort and say we're giving the people what they want and this is why god's law is so adamant about not knowing the knowledge of good and evil is because many times when they put these ideals out as something that's acceptable like homosexuality or or any of these perversions you know, or even teach it in public school like it's an alternative healthy lifestyle, then society will follow suit and suddenly start desiring that. Whether they do or don't, God tells us, and Paul tells us, many times to bring our thoughts under subjection. And so that's what I think the power of the media, in essence, it, it works through politics as well. Anybody who saw the vice president debate last week should be able to see that like films like Idiocracy are right. And these are, you know, it, the same people who do the newscast, like Larry King, are also actors in motion pictures. Yes, that's uh, essentially what they are, isn't it? But, um, you know, 
it all comes down to compromise and people will say, you know, well, what's wrong with having gay marriage? You know, it's not going to hurt, it, hurt us. You know, what, what gays do in the privacy of their own bedroom is their, their business. But the thing is, they don't want to leave it in their bedroom, do it. Do they? They want to remake the world in their, their image where, you know, homosexuality is not only a thing that, you know, should be legalised, but uh, something that should be aspired to, something, a great boon to society. And when we accept compromise, you know, like donations from non-whites, and it leads to further compromise, and further compromise leads to disaster in our society. I, I mean, you have to have absolute, certain absolute values, one of them being we have no dealings with non-whites. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, working with non-whites. I've had to work with plenty of non-whites over the years, but I'm talking about, you know, inviting them into our homes, you know, to, to befriending them. You know, we're here for... the Christ said he, he's come only for the lost sheep of the house, house of Israel, and the Bible says we are the first of... He was the first of many brethren. We are, you know, little Christ with a, with a small c, if you will. And, you know, our mandate, our brief, is to go out and to, to, to help white people, even if we don't particularly like those white people. We're not helping white people by getting into bed, even in a, what seems like a fairly harmless, innocuous way with non-whites. No way. Yeah, that's a good point as well, because you'll very rarely see a heterosexual day parade, but you will always see a gay day parade. In fact, uh, Disneyland in Anaheim, California closes down one day a year. And they celebrate what they consider Gay Day. And that's when all the homosexuals descend on Disneyland and they'll do their rot, you know, their debaucherous acts right there out in the open. A prime example of that has been seen in the last month or so when Chick-fil-A restaurants down here in the South decided that they were going to take the traditional stance on marriage and upset the homosexual community so much that they decided they were going to have a love-in day and basically targeted uh, Chick-fil-A's all throughout the South and Florida and so forth and stood out on the grass, tonguing it up, homosexuals, having their little orgies or whatever they were doing to force their will. And, of course, Chick-fil-A recanted and, and did what they did, but that's a good point you you bring up because it never does stay in the closet, and that's the whole theory of tolerance. If we tolerate your friends, you know, your children being friends with non-whites, then all of a sudden they're dating non-whites. It's just the natural progression of common sense. And when they're dating non-whites, eventually they'll either get pregnant and or married to a non-white. And so I do agree with you on the on the level of compromise, and that's why God says what he does say about certain individuals and certain classes, especially the homosexuals, that you're not supposed to be tolerant of it. And one of the verses that I probably could have brought up tonight in the Desert Island Verses series would have been uh, from the first chapter of, of Paul's epistle to the Romans, where he says that whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, but says that anybody who's worthy of death is essentially those who fall into that category. He says that men with men, women with women, working that which is unseemly. But he also adds the qualifier and the condition that in addition to those who have pleasure within them. And so that's the danger of it all, I think, is it's one thing to sit there and say, well, you know, I don't accept homosexuality. Well, maybe you do if you're watching the Ellen DeGeneres show every day, you know, or you say I'm not tolerant of homosexuality, but maybe we do if we're sending our kids to public school where they're being taught that, and that's the whole point. I do agree with what you're saying in the tolerance level because tolerance is usually the first step to something bad. And, in fact, Pete Peters has pointed this out in the past as well. Usually when society is telling you that we need to tolerate something, it's telling you that we're having to forcibly 
tolerate something that we shouldn't have to. Just as a word, tolerance means that one group of people is having to put up with the filth and the yuck of another. Yeah, the way Ethan kept attacking, making these slide digs that um, Peter sort of really sort of got my a a antenna raised. I, um, uh, you, you know, you could just tell by the things he was saying that he he, he was, you know, I, I don't know, a nimbuster or a Jew or something. You, you could just sort of pick it up in his voice. But I, I let him go on for a while. But in the end, I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I got stuck into him a bit. Not that he really matters, that, that, that it'll matter to him because I think he just rang up for a bit of a lark. But we're going to get people like that from time to time. So, you know, they should be dealt with uh, quickly and effectively. That's what I like about this new series, and I like about the Wednesday night Bible studies, is the fact that it is an open format, and you never know. It could go from an interview to an in-depth Bible study about the uh, Tohu Vabohu, you know, or to the apocryphal books, or to whatever. And in fact, that's exactly what I'd like to see this show become. And so it's not one of these repetitive shows, like Rabbi Samuelson's, where they're repeating the same lies over and over and over, but that it's a mix of both that, you know, it is variety, that we can have people on, we can interview them, and in addition to that... And we can that, yell at them. Yeah, and in addition to that, cover current events, you know, that are pertinent to Christian identity, because a lot of this, oh, this person this, and this person said this in somebody's chat room, isn't important, and has nothing to do with the establishment of the kingdom on earth. But there are events that are happening, especially like you pointing out the... Uh, the March for South Africa and so forth, that I believe we should be bringing forth, you know, so other people can know, because we are a collective whole. And that's the point, is that people need to go to one place to be able to kind of hear that and know exactly what's going on. Because one of our biggest complaints here, at least in Georgia, is that we are too spread out. And even here in Atlanta, there are several Christian identity ministries roundabout that probably aren't as active, but there's no cohesive effort to unify them. One of the biggest you know, questions I get as a pastor through my site and through my forums is people wanting to have fellowship local you know, or even yearly. And so that's something that we've been looking into to actually bringing forth maybe next year's Feast of Tabernacles or the Jubilees or something and actually probably getting part of a state park and then making it a one-time event and see how many people show up. I guarantee you I can fill the pews quicker than the guy on the corner in the church. That's for sure. Oh, that would be absolutely great. Now, Jeremy, I um, there was an important topic I wanted to bring up today, but I have to get going soon, so I, it's too late to do it now. It's about um, the most important thing in the Bible that we can believe in or that we must believe in. And um, I'll, I'll discuss that next week. So I haven't forgotten about that, folks, anyone that's uh, listening in today to hear that. But um, so, seeing we're, we're discussing our next show, Jeremy, kind of, um, what subject would you like to cover? What particular themes or anything you'd like to cover in the, the next show? I like Given going. I actually like here. Yeah, I really like the idea of going forward with the uh, – the Desert Island Verses, and picking five, at least for the time being. And that will give people basically a primer, who, who knows how many parts, but a primer of some of these key pivotal Christian identity verses. And I'd also like to see the, the uh, show program go into, you know, more callers as well. I like people calling in, especially with theological problems. And that's what I'd like to see is a stump the trunk type segment, believe it or not, you know, I'd like some of these people to call in who do have issues. You're with genuine people. 
Yeah, who actually want to sit here and say, you know, who debate me on monogamy or debate me on the reality of Satan or baptism or something. That would also be awesome as well. But if not, at least I think we should branch out and have interesting callers as well. Maybe even yeah, Billy Phelps Roper, you know. Yeah, we don't want... Oh, that'd be good. Uh, we don't want any more um, Rocky Sahada publicists. He's got his own show. So um, <laughs> any more that can't come on, uh, I'm, I'm going to really get stuck into them. But... Um, uh, what was I going to say? Maybe we next week we could, as you said, we will do our Desert Island Verses again, but maybe we'll have a particular theme. Um, uh, maybe we could do Desert Island Verses pertaining to Yahweh's second coming or something like that. What do you reckon? That's a good idea. And as we near Halloween, maybe we should have a special Halloween segment because it's been about four years since I've done Vision of Obadiah. And that's probably one of my favorite personal sermons because of the sound effects. So as we near Sam Hain as well, we could put maybe even have one based on the background or at least the history of what All Hallows' Eve is. So, so when is Halloween? Because we don't have it here in Australia. Oh, that's right. You don't. It's like October 31st, I believe. It's towards the end of the month. All right. Okay. Well, um, so, so should we do that next week or the week after, do you reckon? Actually, I think Halloween falls on next Wednesday, exactly, doesn't it? Is it the 31st? Yeah. So actually, week from next would be perfect because on October 31st will be Halloween night. So, so we should do next Wednesday week. Next Wednesday week. Exactly. And so next right. Wednesday, okay. we can have a totally open format based around whatever you like. All right. Well, if I get any ideas, I'll. Um, we might do the Desert Island verses, or we might do something else. But I'll, I'll, I'll come up with something, and I'll, I'll get your approval just to make sure that everything's um, a okay. Um, so until then, Jeremy, it's been really had a, a, a great little chat and a little little debate with with Ethan this evening. It's been a good show. Excellent. I believe it has as well, and it's a good uh, foundation for probably future segments as well. So it's the beginning of a good series as well. All right, then I'll say Yahweh bless and goodbye. I'll see you later. Excellent. Till next Wednesday, Obadiah. Thanks for being on. Bye. And with that, dear friends, being established, thank you for each and every one of you who has tuned in this evening, and thank you to the callers as well. Uh, like we had discussed already, uh, this would be a perfect showcase segment or a soapbox for you to be able to call in and have serious theological questions about dogmas or doctrines pertaining to Christian identity. A uh, perfect example of that would be what Ethan had discussed as well, many of the numerous mistransliterations that are found within the King James Version. One such example of that is the word prevent. In 1611, when the King James transliterators translated the Bible, in 1611, the word prevent meant to anticipate. Therefore, every time in the King James Bible where you come across the word prevent, in modern English, the man's thought is to think that we are hindering and or stopping something because that's what prevent means in the year 2012. But in the year 1611, prevent meant to anticipate. So when we read the King James Version, that's one such place where the word means something entirely different. Of course, Christian identity espouses numerous places where the word Jew should literally be transliterated as Judean and or Jude Judahite, meaning one member of the tribe. The whole belief of the Jews being God's chosen is ludicrous at its core root because the term Jew, at least scripturally, is a mistransliteration and a slang word for Judean. Uh, 
to attribute the title of all 12 tribes of Israel to one of those 12 tribes could be considered blasphemy in and of itself. So, with that being established, until next Wednesday, once again, this is Pastor Visser from the heart of the Dirty South, that is, Atlanta, Georgia, wishing you and yours great studies, war for Christ. Amen.